Welcome back to Too Much Cowboy, a backtrack mini-series where I challenged five of the most talented media writers I know to have the most interesting conversation about the least remarkable Star Wars film. Solo, a Star Wars story. This second episode explores the opening act of the story and lays out how the first act of this movie fails to set up so much crucial exposition time and time again. Hey guys, welcome back to Backtrack Behind the Creators, uh, the official podcast of Zero Indent. I am David McNeil, the editor-in-chief of Zero Indent and the author of Maynard Trick. I am joined once again by my esteemed friend and the co-host of The Methods of the Madness, Patrick. What's up, Pat? Hey, man. Esteemed. You flatter me, David. Esteemed. Well, you. you said it last time, so <laughs> oh, I, I thought too. I'd bring it back. That's right, yeah. I thought I'd bring it back. Uh, Pat's joining me once again. We're also joined by Danielle. Hello, everyone. Danielle, of course, from Level Story. Uh, both of these cats were here for part one. Uh, because part two, which is the big media analysis, a kind of bonfire discussion of the movie, um, I decided to call in the cavalry. And so I've summoned uh, two of the biggest guns that I know. So we've got uh, Darth uh, joining us. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, Darth, do you want to just kind of give like a quick a quick pitch of, of, of what you do on, on the internet? All right, so I have started this channel a little over two years ago at this point, and um, I've been uploading very consistently, focusing um, purely on Star Wars as my niche, and more specifically, focusing on video essays and then uh, comedy edits as well. So the video essays tend to go extremely, extremely in-depth, looking at one specific thing, looking at like Ray's backstory and um, delving into all of the things that she actually would have had uh, growing up as an orphan out in the desert like that kind of stuff like emotionally how that would have affected her physically how that would have affected her being on the kind of diet that she's on mm-hmm. so kind of kind of a little bit odd <laughs> what is it odd. always say like it's it's another overly analytical star wars essay <laughs> you know yep, yep. yeah i love it um yeah I, I i really dig your stuff and and i the, the reason i kind of summoned you for this one is um a lot of that attention to detail that, that you kind of surface and pick up on is something that is kind of seems to be hypercritical to Star Wars, or at least it was. And some of the newer stuff is maybe less concerned with that. So I'm excited to kind of hear, hear your thoughts on this one. It's really exciting. Uh, we're also joined, of course, by Rybold. Hello there. Now, do you want to kind of give your elevator pitch um, of, of your kind of videos uh, on, the, on the internet? My kind of videos are, I try to keep them fairly short. Uh, the audience that I have tends to be a bit older and has uh, uh, a lot less time. So if I can say something very specific about uh, about something that happens in a Star Wars movie in about five or ten minutes, that's what I try to do. Uh, unfortunately, I've been trending more towards 20 minutes recently. So we'll see if I can. Tends to be the way. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, I started with uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, things more towards the lore of Star Wars, and I've been transitioning away from that to more uh, structural and mechanical things and how movies work and like why something in this particular Star Wars movie worked for me and something in, in a similar thing in, say, a newer Star Wars movie didn't work for me, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally the area of media crit that, that we spend all of our time thinking about, which is, um, and I kind of, I mentioned this in one of your videos in a comment, but like, Watching your stuff, it was interesting to me the way that you were breaking down the implications of uh, little decisions in a story, like who who's eating what and who who can speak which language. The the little implications of those things um, they kind of spiral out and have larger suggestions for the world at large. And that's actually how the edit works in 
speculative fiction, like when you actually um, are working through a structural edit um, or a line edit in, a, in the speculative fiction genre, is like that is the stuff you talk about. It's like, okay, well, you know, if they're sitting down for a meal, what are they actually eating, right? So I always think back to in The Phantom Menace when they sit down um, and they're in Annie's hut, right? And, and um, his mother is preparing them a meal. What the fuck are they eating for dinner? Like uh, blue milk. Bl- yeah, it, 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 it's 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 just this like a, a blank yawning void of like just he didn't think about it because he was worried about the Jar Jar CGI, which admittedly looks good for the time, but it's like that stuff matters. Um, you know, my favorite one of yours, uh, Rai, is the why can why can Ray speak Wookie, um, and how easy it is to to plant that exposition and have it na- you know surface naturally. Um, and so that's a lot of the stuff that we're interested in anyway. So I'm very mm. excited to kind of get, get you guys' thoughts. So you're obviously both like huge Star Wars people. Um, we've got an interesting mix of people in the room. So we've kind of got Pat and myself who are interested in it because it's a giant property that we grew up with. Um, Danielle basically doesn't care about Star Wars and this is the first time she's seen Solo. <laughs> tell, me, tell, me about, tell me about seeing it for the first time. <laughs> Are you asking me or asking yeah, our guests? Yeah. Okay. What, what, what did um, you think? Well, let me just say that this was a movie that I had on my list as one I would never see just because I was just like, I because I don't care about Star Wars that much. Um, and I did try to watch Rogue One and didn't enjoy it that much. Um, I just thought, okay, this is just not for me. I'm never going to watch it. So I kind of went into it like thinking, okay, now I'm going to watch Solo. Um, and to be honest, I thought it was fine. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I concur with that sentiment. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I, I yeah. It, yeah, it's hard because it's like, <laughs> yeah, it is just perfectly fine, um, and that yeah. that in and of itself is a crime of the highest order. Um, it took <laughs> it took no risk. I'm already ranting. It took no risks. It did basically nothing <laughs> new. It it, it 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 was oh, there's so many things about this movie that frustrate the shit out of me. Um, what did okay so. <laughs> Danielle's like I sh- Daniel shrugged and went it was totally fine um, what about um, coming back to this one for you Darth like thinking about this movie again where does it kind of sit for you Star Wars wise like what, what are your kind of thoughts coming into this it's it's weird my expectations for it were actually really darn low after Last Jedi so if I had viewed it without seeing Last Jedi first I might have really been disappointed by it but as it was my expectations were so low that I really, really enjoyed it far more than it actually deserved when I went back and started actually kind of thinking about everything that happened in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I definitely agree with what everyone has said so far. It was, it was fine. It was, it was safe. They didn't take risks. Like you said, um, in a lot of places that would have been really, really interesting, but that's the same thing they did with the entire sequel trilogy. They, they never took risks in any place where it would have been really, really interesting to do so. So that, that's just Disney trying to be overly cautious with their their new IP. Yeah, and I think the irony being that they also made Rogue One, which is just a like pie in the sky pitch of a weird fucking movie um, that took a lot of risks it didn't need to that didn't really kind of go anywhere. Um, and the ending of that was very like risky as well. So yeah it's it, i think it's it's the complicated pathos of kennedy's star wars universe um is something we're going to kind of talk about throughout uh, it's pretty interesting um well the the fact that rogue one was like kind of risky was in itself safe because it's like a little 
it's like a little olive branch to the fans, you know. It's like, oh, look, here's something that's kind of different. It's what you, you know, what you were asking for, but, like, not too drastic. Not different enough to be... To, to, to risk alienating some of your audience. Right, yeah, but, yeah. like, just drastic enough to keep the interest going. You know? Right, so, like, not... So, somewhere between... Last Jedi and Solo, like directly in the middle. Like I don't know. It, that's twice. a pretty like, large gap there. <laughs> it's like sinister in how competent it is. It's sinister in how. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah that's I put that on a t-shirt. It's sinister in how competent it is. Mm. We're talking about um, Rogue One or Solo. Yeah, Rogue One. Okay. I guess. I, see, I thought coming out of Rogue One, uh, so I I go to see all these movies with uh, a good friend of mine. He's my my, I call him my Star Wars buddy. He's uh, he's seen all the shows. He's seen all the movies a thousand times. He's read all the books. He knows everything about the EU. When I have a question about lore, I go to him and I ask him, and he knows all this stuff. And so mm-hmm. we go to see these movies, and then we go to lunch afterwards, and then I tell him why I thought something was terrible, and he tells me why it was actually good. And <laughs> yep, uh, we argued intensely about Rogue One because I thought the first half was a train wreck. And I thought the second half was like the best Star Wars has ever been. And interesting. Uh, yeah, we, we fought a lot about that where he was trying to defend it. And that movie actually has grown on me quite a bit since the first time I saw it. Uh, I like I like it a lot more than I did the first time I saw it. But I still yeah, love the second half the first time I saw it. Why? Did, OK, uh, this is we're already getting way off track, but I'm totally down <laughs> for this. What? Um. What what did you like about the second half specifically? Because it's basically a heist movie, right? I'm trying to remember Rogue One. Like it's just like a ticking clock heist movie, right? Yes. Yeah. And I this is this is related to Solo in that I am a sucker for a heist movie. I love a heist movie. Um, and that is like so. I think the one of the big problems with the the first half, and I'm just going off the top of my head because it's been a while since I've seen it, but. I'm not really clear what we're trying to do in the first half of the movie and stuff is just sort of happening. And Jin as a protagonist is not really that great. And it's not until about the midpoint of the movie that, you know, things kind of tighten up and where it's much more clear what we're trying to do. And like the, the whole, where it really fell apart for me is the part where they go to, where's the secret science base? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. It just doesn't really I, Yeah, we know what you're talking about. I don't so know. they go there system. and the rebels are like, oh, you need to kill this guy. And I'm just like, why? That does, the, the whole, the motivations don't make any sense to me, like what everybody's trying to do there. The oh, whole, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, that whole sequence just completely kills the movie for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and there, there's, there's other stuff too, but we don't need to go into that. I don't, yeah. I don't think. It's interesting you say that because this movie has exactly the same problem. Um, Let's 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 get into it. Otherwise, we're, we're just going to be spinning our wheels about Star Wars for like an hour, which is something we should do another time because, boy, we could talk about Star Wars for a year. Okay, so we're talking about Solo, a Star Wars story. Um, as everybody knows um, who is listening, I infamously walked out of the theater straight onto the podcast set and raved about how great this film was. I had a pretty similar experience to Darth where I, I The Last Jedi was so confusing to me that my expectations were so low that I, I was so thrilled <laughs> that there was just like cool space cowboys and like Western kind of sort of. Um, and I fucking loved it. And there was just like a 40 minute episode of me ta- like explaining how good this is. And I think I objectively disagree with all of it now, like on reflection. <laughs> um, so this is going to be an interesting one anyway. 
All right. Man, so, I hate that no one else laughed at your unintentional <laughs> pun there. Oh, I, your I, expectations I, were so low. I smiled. Oh, I, I, no. I, I got that. <laughs> oh, you you didn't mean oh, you no. didn't mean to do that. That was brilliant. <laughs> No, that was an accident, but we'll take it. Um, okay, so our film opens on Corellia, uh, and it's sort of we. Our opening sequence is this kind of crime movie car chase out of like heat or something like that, uh, where Han Solo is. Tr- oh, sorry, just Han at this stage uh, is trying to escape some coppers. Um, he's on the run. We're not really sure why. Um, it's a it's a pretty interesting kind of. Uh, I say interesting. It's not the word I mean. It's a this whole sequence from when we kind of open on the, on our car chase to when he kind of meets up with Kira feels like it's out of a completely different movie. It's so weird. Um, like the setting is interesting, but it's not star Wars. I don't know. What, what, what did you, what did you guys think of this? This, the star Wars buffs kind of, I mean, like I'm sure like with more of the extended universe under your belts, maybe it's a bit different kind of going to the setting and seeing it this way. But but just the even the presentation that the basic kind of um, setting of this place was so foreign to me. It just kind of it had nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Well, I have I have a bunch of thoughts on this. I think I, I sent you some of them. The uh, go just to go back briefly to what we were talking about before. It took me four times or four attempts to actually get through the whole movie because I think the movie goes wrong right from the first shot. And it's not until about 20 minutes in that it actually that it's actually picks up. And once I made it to that point, I liked it because and it was again, it was only because my Star Wars buddy called me up and said, hey, I saw Solo. You need to go. You need to go watch it because it's actually kind of good. And that this was probably two or three months after The Rise of Skywalker came out. We waited that long to see it. But um, wow, because uh, neither of us were interested in in going to see it. But um yeah, I think uh, the problem with the very first shot is that it feels like we're coming into the middle of something, right? But we're coming in on the back end of the action, and then we go, then the, we're, at, we're at a peak, and then we drop down into nothingness for several minutes. And it's a very odd feeling. That's the first thing. The second thing, and this is the thing that I actually really, really love about this first thing, is that uh, it's, this is a heist movie. And the beginning of the movie should set the tone for what the rest of the movie is going to be. And the very first thing that we see Han doing is stealing something in the very first shot. And I, I love that. But the, the rest of this part just does not work for me. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about the way that this is structured. So typically, if you were going to do this right, you would give us I, a better version of this. And maybe it was budgetary. Maybe it was time. Maybe it was reshoots. Who the fuck knows why this is the way it plays out in the script. But a better version of this is something like the opening of baby driver where you get to see a whole like tight five act arc within that first beat of the story where you understand this character's abilities and limitations and the dangers they're facing, right? It sets you up to understand what each of the core members of this crew are capable of their personalities, their particular skill sets. And it also lets you know that like, this is a, this is dangerous stuff. There are cops. This is like a big kind of like this stuff is life and death, right? It sets the stakes well for what's to come. Um, you're right in that we don't get to see Han do the stealing, which would have been fucking interesting, right? Imagine opening up on wherever he's breaking into to steal it from. Um, you know, it opens up and it starts as like kind of a bit of a thriller type 
beginning to a heist and then he breaks in and he has to deal with some guards and you get some cool action and we could see maybe his abilities and limitations there and understand the stakes and then you get the cool car chase which naturally feeds into the escalating consequences instead we just get the car chase and we have no context for why he's doing this um it's yeah it's dropping us in the middle of it you're right but like not the right bit of the middle if that makes sense it's funny you compare it to baby driver because i was thinking like the editing the snappy editing to the music kind of feel it has yeah is um yeah it's not really carried on through the rest of the movie no and this make this what makes me wonder if maybe this was just a straight up lord and miller shot that they just kept Mm. um because it has an energy and a and a a kinesis to it that is very them like i think about the way that they they deliberately did the editing and the frame rate manipulation in spite of us and this this reeks of that kind of specificity uh, when it comes to the the shots they're choosing yeah well if when you bring up the music the music is a very interesting point for this part because if you go back and watch it the uh the music is right there for the peak of the excitement at the very opening of the movie and then like i said everything drops off including the music and we go from this peak and then down into like relaxing or the you know the easing of tension which we did not have and that is just completely the wrong feeling to me at the beginning of this I, yeah, I, I wonder if the easy fix here is like instead of having this like okay now we get to go in and talk to Proxima or whatever, don't give us the the weird lull where there's like three minutes of screen time with Kira and Han just like palling around, like just get like have him go straight to Proxima. The cops are still on his tail. There's a time limit to the conversation. Like all the pieces are there. It's just there's no pressure applied to anything to keep that momentum. It's just, it's weird, man. It's the my first solution, thing that... My solution is actually more drastic than that. Oh, good. Yeah, you, hit me with it. You just chop off the whole front end. You start with him flying through the air on Mimbin, and it's great. You cut off the whole front end of the booby, <laughs> and it works a whole lot better. There's a couple yeah. minor tweaks that you would have to make. Because this whole thing is not like, uh, you were talking about Baby Driver. And that is an effective introduction to the character, what they can do. And it puts them in jeopardy and does all sorts of other things that gets you to care about the character. And none of that happens at the beginning of this movie. And it's not until he's in he's in Mimbin and um, you're you're introduced him to him a little more, and then you have him and Chewie and everything. We're getting way ahead of your beat sheet. That's fine. But, keep keep you good. <laughs> but uh, it's not until he's in Mimbin, and it's actually not until actually they get off of Mimbin, and him and Chewie are standing on the ship, and they're talking, and then we have the fireside chat, and that is where yes. I'm like, all right, I care about this guy. This is this is Han Solo to me now. I, I can I yep. can roll with this because that I think is the huge mistake they make at the beginning of this movie is that this isn't Han Solo, this is Han. You need to introduce me to this guy because I care about Han Solo, but I don't know who this is. And I don't know if there is a defining characteristic for Han until until that fireside chat when he mm. is forced to be vulnerable. The, the, the thing that defines him up until that point is that he's in a bad situation and is trying to get out of it and cares about Kira. None of that is particularly unique characterization. None of that does anything for me. Like, I don't know anything about this guy except he's every guy. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. Yeah, he's just every dude. He, he kind of likes his girlfriend... Wants, wants to take care of her, and he's in a bad spot, and he's trying to get out of it. So well, there's another, this... there's another problem to that. I'm sorry. Did I cut somebody off? Oh, no, that's all right. You go. There's another problem there that you, that, you, that you bring up is that, you know, he's in a tough situation, and he wants to get out of it. And that's good at the beginning. We want that for our characters. But 
he already has the solution for it in hand. Mm-hmm. He's not stuck. He already has, I mean, he's stuck, but he already has a solution ready to go. So that's a problem. Mm. Yeah. And this, this will kind of, uh, we should probably set up the, the situation with him and Proxima. So basically like, so Han and Kira, I guess they, they work for this, this local gang that's run by Lady Proxima. Um, and she is this kind of big tentacle matron. Does she have tentacles? Well, she's she's a big snaky tentacle thing. She's like a millipede almost, a centipede, (laughs) millipede, water millipede. Yeah, you guys know how good they are at running crime syndicates. (laughs) (laughs) It's a stereotype. It's a stereotype, man. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Millipedes can be anything they want to be. And I mean to put them in a corner. Uh, Yeah, this setup is weird. So we're, we're supposed to take from this that that they've been now they're not slaves, are they? Are they slaves? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, or well, they're at least like indentured to her service or something. Yeah. Um. So from what I, was, I gather, it was like a it was like an orphanage for for kids who had nowhere else to go, and they had to steal or else they didn't have food to eat, and she provided the food. Um, right. one of the kids uh, in that first cut scene says that uh, I'll get an extra portion for this necklace or whatever. So it's kind of like uh, it's like all of a twist type of situation, huh? Yeah, exactly. You can see what they were going for, can't you? You can see them being like, "Okay, this will be compelling." Will like this is kind of the equivalent of um, he's doing all these bad things, but he's not a bad guy. Like that's kind of what this framing is, I think, supposed to do. Right. Um, but that's pretty uninteresting. Like, show me. Th- this is kind of what you were saying before, right? It's like introduce me to Han. Like, what are his values? Maybe he doesn't. Maybe at the start, God forbid, this character could change and evolve. Maybe he doesn't give the kid, um, or you know, he he has a bit of bit of food with him and he eats it himself instead of giving it to a kid. Like there are many things you could do here to characterize him um, within this setting, but the setting's just never used. Um, instead, we get a cool rock toss that breaks a window because I guess this mob he's, boss is also allergic to light. He's resourceful. He's resourceful. This is what you need to know from this scene, right? Well, because yeah. okay, so he bluffs, right? So this is it. Yeah. Okay, you know what? This is interesting. This is a this is kind of a cool moment. Um, he's got a rock, and he, he pretends it's a thermal detonator, um, <laughs> which is a bold-faced lie, and I kind of love how stupid it is. Um, and he's the, like, the listen, you've got to back off. Click, click, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he says click. Everybody stand back! What's that supposed to be? This is a thermal detonator. Um, and then, and, and yeah, he, he pitches it at the window, which puts sunlight on Proxima, which gives him a distraction in order to escape. Um, it's a cool setup that would work in a different circumstance. Um, again, yeah, you're right. It's trying to teach us he's resourceful. Um, but essentially, now they're on the run from both Proxima's gang and the cops, is, is my understanding of what's happening. So they rush kind of to the, um, I guess, to the galactic space dock type place. Uh, and Han's right, plan... Hold up. Let's, uh, yeah. let's hit pause just a sec, because I want to go back to a couple things way back at the beginning. Let's do it. Um, something that I noticed in the introductory uh, credits is the wrong term, but um, when they're laying down the, the groundwork of what's going on, um, it specifically says uh, medicine, supplies, and hyperfuel. And I don't know if anyone noticed um, when they're saying, you know, what all the rare things are that Han is trying to steal. Um, hyperfuel is the only word that's all in capital letters. Yeah. Like they are laying down without like overtly saying it 
they are showing which one of those medicine supplies hyperfuel. They are showing which one is the most important thing, and they are saying that fuel is going to be the most important thing for this entire movie before we even see one shot of footage. It's so I thought that was really interesting. interesting. Yeah, they do the same thing with Luke in The Force Awakens, where Luke Skywalker has vanished. Or whatever. And the Death Star in A New Hope. Death Star in A New mm. Hope. It, it's, it's an interesting... I mean, because the, the, the opening crawl is a fascinating thing to have to put in your movie. Like, I think about this all the time, where, like, if, if, if every book, if every novel that I sent to a publisher, they were like, okay, the story's great, but now you have to write an introductory crawl that sets up the world in a way that doesn't ruin any of your twists and sets up enough exposition, but not too much. That'd be a mammoth task. Like, whoever has to do that shit, like... Well, there, it, there's yeah. a, a really interesting thing that, I, that um, uh, I heard. I don't remember where... I don't remember where the source is. I did not come up with this, but it was that... The opening crawl of A New Hope, especially, is style and not information. Because all of the information contained in that opening crawl is still in the movie. That is still relayed to us over the course of the movie. You don't, if you cut, if you get rid of that, it's not necessary. Or like the, the opening crawl is not necessary to the beginning of, of the movie. Or, but it's there as a style thing. And I was I haven't gone back to to compare that because I, I wanted to see like oh how true is that for the rest of the movies as well, but uh, but I have looked at a New Hope and I think that definitely is true for that that it's a style choice and not something that's required for you to get into the movie. Yeah, it's like a tone setter. I mean that's that's like classic um, tabletop RPG style like table setting is let me tell you a bit about the world. Um, it's, it's basically operating on one level of abstraction above our story. So our story occurs in the, the day-to-day of this character, and the next level of, of abstraction above that is what's happening in the immediate galaxy. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're being told in the opening crawl, is it's kind of that next level up. It's like your, your dungeon master being like, okay, this is what's happening at the world at large, and now we, we telescope into you're sitting in a tavern, you're here for this reason. It's kind of that, that first level up. Um, it's yeah that that is interesting because i think in this movie at least the opening crawl doesn't really tell us anything that we super need to know except that hyperfuel is important and all that does is let us know that when when we work out that coaxium is the thing that needs to be processed to make hyperfuel that it's valuable like that's really the only thing of significance it's setting up um plus the the gangs and stuff with proxima um yeah, it, it's an interesting thought. I, if, if anybody listening or watching this kind of has gone and done that work and looked at the other crawls, I'd, I'd love to know. Like, drop it in the comments or, or shoot us an email. Because I actually really... want to say that I think Empire might fit that mold because the 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 crawl in Empire talks about how the Empire is still hunting for the for the rebels, and um, it talks about how uh, Han is a leader and all of this kind of stuff. But, and you see all of that stuff because the opening shot is the Empire sending out drones so we know that they're being you know they're hunting them we are immediately introduced to to han and how he's a leader and all this kind of stuff i i think rye is correct that that intro could be cut out completely and you're still given all of that same information hmm. it's yeah. been a while but i feel like the prequels used that the opening crawl as much more of a information dump oh, dude the amount of exposition in the in the in the prequels ones it's from memory huge yeah it's like the Trade Federation, like, it, it introduces all these concepts immediately, which are all mm. cool ideas. Like, I, the, the Trade Federation and the Imperial Blockades and the politics, I fucking love. But that's not how you set that up, mm. I don't think. 
No, I'm, also I'm, pretty, spoilers, I'm guys. pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that's correct because the I think I looked at two movies after I heard that. I'm like, that's an interesting concept. And I think I looked at the Phantom Menace and I was like, yeah, you kind of need to know all this stuff mm-hmm. before you before you go in there. And then I think uh-huh. I looked at uh, I think it was either The Force Awakens or Rise of Skywalker. And I was like, I, I think you need to know this stuff, too. Like the, it was well, like, oh, Palpatine's of, back, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Rise of Skywalker is huge. They're like, everybody's been dreaming of Palpatine. You're like, wait, what? Yeah, and if you didn't play <laughs> Fortnite, you didn't know. <laughs> if you didn't play Fortnite, you didn't know. And isn't that just 2020 for you? Um, Jesus, or whenever that movie came out. Uh, yikes, 2019. Anyway, another reason that I wanted to talk about the opening crawl is because it gets us back to the very beginning of Solo. Um, because I had a thought that, that might kind of explain uh, what Rai was saying about how he thought the entire beginning just didn't feel right. Um, so the entire reason that Han was boosting the speeder and trying to escape, um, I don't know if you everyone caught on, that it was a failed sell. You know, he was going with all of that coaxium to sell for Proxima, and it was stolen from him. So that whole opening sequence is supposed to be him running for his life, which he looks a little bit scared. You could kind of see that he's he's a little bit bloody, so you could see that he was in a fight. But the entire uh, demeanor that he has is coming off as it was a success. When he's back with with when he's back with Kira, he's like, "We have this. We can get away." But he's not saying, "Oh, I just lost millions of dollars worth of coaxium that Proxima is going to put out a bounty on me for. The entire thing is played off as a success when in fact it was an, a failure that we're coming in midway on, uh, like Rai was talking about. And that that leads into something that I've seen not only in Solo, but in the entire sequel trilogy, that failure does not seem to have consequence. Um, nothing really bad happens because of this failure. Um, when they go and uh, they pl- when Han plays Sabacc against Lando, he completely loses. He had to win to get the ship and it doesn't matter that he lost. They still got... Yeah. And that happens over and over and over again. Failure doesn't actually have any consequence in these films. Well, they also... They also, the second something goes wrong, they just immediately give up. And they're like, well, we failed. Better wait for someone to come solve this problem. Um... It's yeah, it's it's crazy. Like my I've, favorite is when um uh Woody Harrelson's wife dies and then he's like, "Well, on to the next thing." <laughs> that was tough. Yeah. Better go do our job, yeah. I guess. <laughs> um that and I think the the worst one is at the end of the last Jedi where they're all in the cave and they're like, "Wow, we're really shagged. We've got boy, we really we really screwed up, guys. Not sure how we're going to get out of this one. And they all literally sit around and wait for Luke and Rey to turn up. That is literally what happens. They just sit there and go, better not try to solve this ourselves. Better just sit here. I hope someone will come and solve this. And lo and behold, Luke and Rey come and solve this. And it just, it's insane to me. I don't understand what they're doing, why failure has no consequence, why characters don't try again. Because that's what we like about characters, right? Han Solo in, in the original trilogy is is the scrappy guy who like keeps trying shit until something works, right? He he you know he's going out to find Luke at the start of uh, Empire and he finds Luke and he's like, Gee, okay, this is fine. okay. What do we do now? All right, I got to cut this thing and he, like he keeps trying. He doesn't just go. It's cold and we're in a snowstorm. Guess we better lay over and die. That's what would happen in the, in the. Um, in the sequel trilogy, and then, you know, the Millennium Falcon would swoop in and Chewie would save them or something. Um, there's, there's never any trying to solve it again. Uh, it's just really weird. I, I completely agree, Darth. That's literally what happened with Rey at the end of Force Awakens. She's just sitting there out in the snow crying, 
Chewie swoops in oh on the God, Falcon right. and saves her. Oh but God. that's yeah. So there's there's a thing about that as uh, that was a that was a big point in uh, one of the videos that I did about the Last Jedi about how you what I called a third party intervention and you can actually everybody's seen Mandalorian right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, no. So somebody <laughs> shaking their head. That's okay. You, okay. you can spoil so, it. Say whatever you need. So the 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 uh, the where Luke shows up at the end of Mandalorian. That's a third party intervention. But there's a very there's two big differences there. Is that um, you can only do that kind of once in an episode or a movie. If you do it too much, it like you're 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 sitting there in the theater going, okay, this is you know somebody's going to come and save them. You know the stakes aren't here, and. That only happened, which is why in episode uh, three with Bo-Katan, when she, they, they come in to save him back to back in two scenes, that second time that it happens, it feels kind of kind of off. But uh, when Luke shows up at the end of Mandalorian, like that's the third party intervention. But they're still they They haven't given up. They're like, all right, let's guns up. We're going to try to fight. We're going to where our situation is hopeless, but we're not just going to sit here and take it. There's a there's a there's a difference there, and I, the, and the third party intervention occurs because of something Mando did previously. Yes, it's a that's it, it's, it's a it's, it's a, a lifeline of his actions. Yeah, it's exactly. a, it's a yeah. it's a lifeline intervention. Yeah, which if, if I'm recalling my uh, my twelfth grade English, the uh, uh, Duex Machina, uh, the the chariot of the gods, just the the gods literally swooping in to save someone when it's not indicated by the story whatsoever. I, that seems to be what uh, he's referring to, but y'all are uh, much more up to date on your literary terms. If I'm getting that incorrect, no, no, that's yeah, yeah. Deus Ex Machina is exactly what it is, and you know that that concept can can work. Um, it just it it only works in a certain genre, right? So like the reason it doesn't it doesn't work in Star Wars is that Star Wars is a fantasy story, and it's not they're not like tragedies. So Deus Ex Machina works well in tragedies. Um, the one I'm thinking of specifically is in in the Medea uh, by Euripides at the very end. I don't know. This is a reference, no, but just stay with me. So at the end of that play, basically, um, Medea um, uh, has she's betrayed her husband and she's going to kill her kids because um, it's the only way that she can think to solve this problem. So she's going to kill her kids, kill her husband, and she's going to gain the power of uh, or kind of gain the favor of the gods. And at the very end, when she's doing this, there's literally a deus ex machina to help her do this, where she literally gets a chariot, like, flown by fucking crazy demon horses. Like, she literally gets a chariot, like, gets a literal deus ex machina. And it works really well, because she's doing a bad thing, and it's the gods, like, tacitly endorsing that. But it works because of the genre space it's in. If you can't do that in a different film, like if you had, um, uh, what's what would be like a good example? Um, at the end of how the fuck does A New Hope end? Oh, he shoots the Death Star. Uh, I was like, how but does there is go? there. It's important to note there is a third party intervention there at the end of A New Hope. But it's the greatest third party intervention that ever happened in movies. When Han comes back, just like we want him to to oh, save the that's day. So good. That's right. It's and, such a good moment. And again, there's key differences here. Is that one, we knew he was available. We knew he was out there. We really want him to come back. Um, and the other thing is Luke is still trying to make the shot while this is happening. He's, he's focused on his thing. He's trying to get something done. He's still working towards the problem, but he gets an assist from Han. Mm-hmm. That's that's the... there's actually a there's actually a second intervention though because he would not have turned off the targeting computer if he had not heard Obi Wan's voice telling him to believe in himself. Huh. 
Although the and that's that's a question of is that from diegetically is he is he hearing Obi Wan through the Force or is he just remembering that Obi Wan was always talking about the Force and shit? No, that that's Obi Wan through the Force. 100%. Okay, in that case, yeah, in, in that case, then yeah, absolutely. I mean, arguably, Ray. Well, actually, okay, so I think that's the difference with the end of um, Rise of not Rise of Skywalker. Uh, what's the first one in the sequel trilogy called? Uh, Force Awakens. Force Awakens. Yeah. At the end of Force Awakens, when Ray. Um, when when Ray is backed against the cliff and Kylo's like, I can teach you about the Force, right? You know, I could train you. She, he actually reminds Ray about the Force, and she remembers that Kaz 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 Mars Kanata. Okay, so not what I Mars. said. Um, just Mars. <laughs> Ray remembers what the what that you know that character had said to her about the Force. Like if you just listen, if you close your eyes and listen, you'll hear it. And it's a combination of her. She actually connects those dots herself because Kylie reminds her. So she kind of self intervenes to kind of give herself the Force and, and is able to then kind of overcome him in that moment. Yeah, it's 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 exactly exactly what you're talking about, Darth. It's like. The, the the fact that these these failures have no consequence and there is always a third party intervention robs our protagonists of a the ability and it's what you were talking about right a the ability to be struggling while they're saved like they're making an effort like in Mandalorian um, like in uh, A New Hope and then b it kind of it kind of never punishes them properly for failure because there, there can be no significant lasting consequence because we wouldn't want our characters to say I don't know lose a limb or something for example, um, <laughs> just as a random example, that could be like bad for them, but maybe you could, you know, maybe you could repair that consequence later to allow them to still be a participant in your story. I don't know. Um, Darth, did you have anything else on, on the introduction there? We, we probably should try and uh, uh, make some tracks into this bad boy, but do you have anything else on the start there? Um, one other thought that is in the Lady Proxima arena, which um, I'm not sure if anyone picked up on, the, uh, the way that she controlled power um, uh, physically. Um, the, the guards that were beating Han were using, like, literal sticks, right? The only one who actually had a gun was her head honcho who spoke some alien language. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had a literal control of power with only one person with a gun, that, so there was no possibility of an insurrection ever happening. Huh. That has a lot of implications for the kind of world this is. Like, guns then presumably must be contraband and controlled very heavily, right? Yeah, which which leads into eventually, uh, when we get to the part of why in the world are there so many stormtroopers at the exit point? That I, I am completely confused by that, but that may tie into the contraband thing uh, eventually when we get there. Yeah, it's very confusing as a setting choice i get like okay from a from an action perspective and a choreography perspective it makes sense because if they had guns they would just shoot han right so like they can't do that but the in-universe doesn't like there's no real tracking of why there aren't guns there like and you could have like a um fuck you can even fold it into the detonator thing maybe the whole you know lady proxima arena maybe the 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 water she's in emits a very flammable gas so you'd never bring in a blaster because if you fired it the whole room would go up and so harm with the thermal detonator is an increased threat right you could sneak Mm. your exposition into your action um but that would be multi-purpose storytelling and this movie has no interest in doing that whatsoever (laughs) so (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry, Solo. I, I like you, <laughs> but but you're bad. Um, okay, yeah. So we we let's talk about. So okay, we, we talked about the Proxima kind of setup, um, and and this action set piece, and then we kind of we begin our kind of transition chase sequence through to the the kind of space dock or the the, the kind of space port thing. Um, did anybody have anything on this sequence? And just checking in, Danielle, this this introductory sequence. Um, how are you feeling? Because I I could only imagine that there's a lot going on and none of it makes any sense. Is that what was happening in your head? Pretty much. And honestly, I was paying attention mostly to the actor playing Han. But I forget his name again. Alden um, Einreich. Okay. Alden. Um, I just wanted to see, like, because again, like, I'm I've seen plenty of star wars movies but i'm still unfamiliar enough that i wasn't sure how much i'd be picking up or not i I just wanted to pay attention to his performance most of the time so a lot of the set pieces i wasn't so much paying attention to i was just kind of taking him in and trying to see what he was doing with the character at the start Mm -hmm. um but for the most part a lot of the stuff you guys are talking about very in-depth awesome but i didn't pick up on any of it so props to all of you guys um picking up on all that it's stuff. what it's what we it's the only thing we ever think about like we're, we're cursed and I i'm mean, gonna like I, we're like we're cursed and i'm gonna live forever so i'll just be talking about star wars till till the sun burns out i assume till star I mean, wars I episode used to do the 21 same thing with harry yeah. potter so yeah. <laughs> there you go. time in my life i don't know how much i'll have to say about the rest of the movie because it's most of my focus on this has been about the beginning and trying to figure out why it yeah. didn't work for me because of, this I'll, this uh this this uh this chase where we're at right now is the exact point where I figured out this isn't working for me because when I finally got to see it at home or on Disney plus, I'm not a captive audience. I have dual screen there and they get in the car and they're on the, they're on the run and they're on their way and everything. And I reflexively pick up the mouse and open Reddit and I'm like, Oh, what's going on on Reddit? I'm like, aha, (laughs) this is the moment something's happening or something is not happening here. And I don't yeah. care. And it's because I don't care about these characters yet. So they're in jeopardy, but I don't care. And that was, that was like, all right, so this is the problem. They haven't got me to care about these characters. And why do you think, why do you think that is? Uh, I think, well, like I said, partly it's that whole beginning sequence with Proxima and everything doesn't really work too well as an introduction. And it doesn't really tick all the boxes to get me to care about the characters. Like, uh, if we're going to compare it to, say, like The Force Awakens, that four minutes where they introduce you to Rey, there's like 20 different things that happen that get you to care about the character uh, that they do very effectively, I think. Um, but they don't, like, they're, they're, there's, they don't really do that here. And the other thing is that that whole, first, that whole sequence with Proxima is incredibly blue. And... That is, yes. <laughs> that, that is that is a that is a comment like the, I have a h- enormous problem with the color of this movie throughout. Like yeah, everything is, is too bright, it's too dark, it's too it's too blue. It's uh, uh, the color is all wrong. I, the blue was suffocating a little. Like I I was having a hard time with it at first. I was like, geez, they really leaned into this. All right. Yeah, and part a... of the introduction of the character is we need to be able to see them because we don't know who this guy is. You know, I, I think about this a lot with with movies that have characters that or protagonists that don't talk a lot, 
And specifically, I always think about Blade Runner when we talk about openings, because something that both Blade Runner movies do really well is they have these kind of taciturn protagonists who don't, who aren't terribly emotive um, and don't express themselves that much at the very start. Obviously, they kind of open up and, and are vulnerable later. But one thing they do that, that works really well is we just get to see like a normal day in their life. And because it's sci-fi and because it's different and because it's visually interesting and they're planting the seeds of what's going to happen, that day in their life kind of like is interesting to us. I mean, like, you know, uh, uh, Ryan Gosling's character, um, Kay? Kay. Kay, his day in his life is fucking exciting because he's a bounty hunter, right? He, he goes out um, and he hunts down these, um, these synthetic humans and you get that cool action sequence with... Um, uh, with with the wrestler in in sort of this this weird dystopian kind of farm place, and it's it's interesting in and of itself conceptually, but it's also interesting character work because we learn so much about what's going on um, inside this guy's head without really having to be told. And I think we just don't spend enough time with Han in his old world, right? If we're talking from a from a um, mythology perspective, if if we're thinking about Joseph Campbell, we don't spend enough time with him in the world that is to understand what he's losing. So, like, because we don't know what's good about what he has, when his life is threatened, we're like, well, why does it matter? What's he losing? What's, what's, what, what's, what's at stake here? Right? We don't know anything about his relationship with Kira. Is that good? Is that the only thing keeping him going? We don't know because we don't spend enough time with them. Is, is he protecting the kids here? Does he value the kids here? Is that why he's hung around for so long? We don't know because we don't spend enough time there. And it's that inability to linger and characterize and be like this is the old world this is the the things here that he's he's walking away from in order to embark on this quest right it'd be like if if lord of the rings um you started instead of having bilbo's birthday you started like as they're walking to the prancing pony or something Mm. you'd be like i don't know why i care about these that's that's a good parallel yeah yeah i don't know It, it just doesn't it doesn't work for me for that reason i completely agree right it's it's just a missed opportunity to to well, give us more of these characters. Touching, touching on what you said about uh, sort of expanding this part, I think if they wanted to make a trilogy of movies out of these, out of this, and I, I think mm-hmm. they kind of did, the, uh, they the whole first movie should have been that opening, getting out mm-hmm. of Corellia, should have been the yeah. whole first movie. Oh, yeah. That would have been good, yeah. That would have been really good. Like a cool, like a gritty kind of, like you could, yeah, you could kind of lean into the, the kind of space noir thing. Um, you could have really beat down uh, Han Solo. Yeah. Uh, just like, you know, like physically and emotionally. Truly, because yeah. it's an oppressive space. Yeah. Right? It looks tough to live there. Damn. Uh, we're at 45. We're at 45. Yeah. Right. We're, we're going to have to take a, a very brief break and then we'll come back. Um, I, I think the, the introduction, so where we're at now, just before we, we, we hit pause and, and y'all and Joseph Products and Services, um, where we're at currently is basically that these characters are on their way to escaping this location and and i think right hit the nail on the head the reason why we're lingering on this so much is that the rest of the film is now now has to deal with the setup of this introduction right introductions and beginnings to stories are so critical because you have one act of your story to plant the exposition for literally every idea and thing that comes later Right. One of the things that we always talk about in the editing bay um, uh, for for my novels is like it's a fantasy world. This is not our this is not our universe. If if you want to halfway through the movie introduce the idea of like starship fuel, then we need to have that. That needs to be a present object in the first act. And granted, it is here. But there are other ideas that are introduced later that need to be at least alluded to 
um, snuck in somewhere, offhand dialogue. There are ways you can do this, background noise. Um, th- th- there are ways that you can do this that don't feel obtuse. I think, Rai, you, you had a great example in one of your videos about Ray's characterization with um, when she's uh, talking Wookiee. Um, all we needed for her to be able to speak Wookiee and for it to be feasible is during that montage of her day, um, I think the example you used is like maybe she could be like bartering with a Wookiee or something. Yeah, um, we don't even have to hear it. No, we don't even have to hear it. We just we we just visually it's it plants it in our subconscious. Next time she speaks Wookiee, we go, Yeah, of course she can speak Wookiee. She would have to speak like dozens of languages to to stay afloat and barter on this 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 weird hellhole of, of Tatooine or, or wherever the fuck she is. But it's not Tatooine, it's Jakku, uh, I think. Jakku, right. Because yeah. why would you want to go back to Jakku? Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, we're going to take a quick app break, so we'll be back in one second. Um, enjoy these products and or services, and if you want to buy them, all, you, the links, you click the links and stuff. It helps us out. Hey, guys, this second episode of Too Much Cowboy is brought to you by my novel series, Maynard Trig. You can find them at maynardtrig.com. They are low sci-fi, coming-of-age fantasy stories all about the protagonist, Maynard Trigg. The second novel, Maynard Trigg and the City of Whispers, is out now, available for order in paperback from the website. You can get 10% off using code COWBOY10 at checkout. That is COWBOY10 at checkout to grab yourself 10% off your first paperback order. And stick around to the end of this episode of the show to hear a little excerpt read by the incredible Wayne Jim. Welcome back. We're back. Hope you enjoyed. Um, hope you enjoyed them. And if you purchase one of them products or services, I, good. It's good. keeps the keeps the wheels turning. Keeps our lights on. Um, it's good for capitalism and the economy. So let's talk about uh, getting off Corellia. So we get we get this Proxima set piece, um, and for some reason, Kira gets zero characterization here. If she was going to be working for Darth Maul this whole time, or like later on. I don't understand why we didn't get her, like, doing some brutal shit to stormtroopers. Like, give us some pre-indication she's going to turn out to be a bad dude. I don't know. You could have done something here with, with that, I think. Um, and also just given, given the Game of Thrones chick something to do. Like, Amelia Clark just kind of chews the scenery the whole time. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I didn't really notice it just because I think Dragon Lady just has such a presence on screen. But you're right. It would have been cool if we saw her do some sort of if there were hints of immorality. Yeah, she could have, like... Han could have been, like... You know, they, they could have been doing a gunfight. You could have done the classic one. It's really easy, right? They... You disarm someone, and Han's like, no, leave them. And she's like, nah, we can't risk it. Bang, shoots them or something. Mm. And it could be a stormtrooper, so it's not a huge consequence because they, they're not people, as we all know. Um, <laughs> oh, wait, hang on. <laughs> um, I, but, like, I think you, the you only... I think the only moment that she really gets like that is when they're actually uh, bartering with the lady to go through the door. And that's mm-hmm. the that's the only time she kind of asserts herself or uh, deviates from what Han is from what Han is doing. Mm-hmm. Just, and it's just a little bit that she's a little bit more forceful about. No, you let us to the door, and then we'll give you the stuff. But that's right. the only time that that happens. I think in this so, opening sequence. And so their plan here, and Roma, if I get this incorrect, someone someone let me know. But, but basically, they they arrive, and the plan is to use this coaxium, this starship fuel stuff to barter their way through and then like get a ship or buy passage and just like get off the planet right do they have a plan after that or is he just like i'm gonna buy a ship and become a cool space cowboy is that his plan i think so yeah it's a good plan yeah i have that same plan (laughs) Um, i'm gonna get off this this dang this dang rock and get off this moisture farm and i'm gonna go find adventure 
Um, I have another question. How once they use the coaxium to get to the door, how do they buy the tickets? I was about to ask the same thing. <laughs> do they have more than one coaxiums? No, it's the, that's it. They they've only got the one. I maybe it's maybe it's like if you get through the door, you can just go any way you want. Maybe they don't have the movie tickets. says don't think about it that hard. Yeah, yeah the movie's like, <laughs> whoa, 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 and it's whoa, whoa. like we don't uh, have internal consistency. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's actually something interesting they did with the price of the coaxium. I don't know if anyone picked up on that. That that uh, when Han first uh, shows it to Kira, she says this is worth what five six hundred. I, I think those are the numbers that she used. Yeah. Um. When when she's at the ticket window and she says to the lady, this is worth eight hundred, maybe more. So she inflated the price to try to make it appear a little more valuable. I like See, that. See, this is, this is why I brought you on, Darth, because I wouldn't have noticed that. That's <laughs> fucking sick. I like yeah. that. That's cool. That's a little, like, that's a little spicy little detail for a character. Um, you know, it would be cool. I feel like that's probably something Han could and should. Well, I suppose he doesn't with the detonator. I don't know. It, it's just like, what's the difference between them then? Maybe that she's better. She's a, like, he's a fast-talking you know smuggler but she's a she's a fast talking smuggler who's actually good at fast talking is that kind of the intimation <laughs> at this stage i think maybe like it implies a bit of um solo's personality in the original trilogy like you know he barters with uh, obi-wan about how much they're going to pay him to to take them across the galaxy or whatever so the fact that you know han deals with money in those movies is like oh maybe he got it from kira yeah i could see that yeah. i could see that um, yeah, cool detail. Um, really, really interesting. Uh, anything else anybody wants to call out about this kind of scene, you know, as they arrive and then moving through this kind of gate? Um, uh, I, I guess I, I should say to narratively, basically what then happens is um, Kira kind of gets captured in this process, but Han kind of gets through the, the checkpoint okay. Um, and yeah, yeah, okay, we should talk about this. So he goes up to the desk... <laughs> Uh, to sort of, I, I guess it's like a, you know how you know how on the back end uh, border planets in the outer rim where they're all run by kind of crime and, and gang lords and the stormtrooper presence is kind of thin outside of the uh, outside of the the galaxy docks. You know how on those planets uh, they have just a desk where you can enlist in the navy. Um, you guys know how it is on crime ridden planets. Those are the key <laughs> candidates we want in the empire. Uh, but he goes up to the desk and he's like, get me into flight school, baby. I'm going to be a bloody pilot. You've never heard of anyone who's going to be such a good pilot. You don't even know how good of a pilot I'm going to be. My name's Han. And then the, the Imperial officer says, oh, dope, but surname or last name or whatever, which interestingly means they have concepts of last names. Um, uh, and he goes, I, I don't have one um, or whatever. And the Imperial officer goes, Han Solo. Yeah. Um, an unremarkable backstory for you know an unremarkable like he's a remarkable character but he's unremarkable in contrast to like his role with among the jedi is he's, that he's just a normal dude he's not a space wizard yeah. yeah so i really like this backstory of how he got his last name i i don't mind the concept i think the execution is where i i take i take issue it's a little cheesy it's not that it's it's not even, it's not that it's cheesy or trite or even that it's canny it's that the setup for this doesn't make any fucking sense like it's what I was saying before. Like, why is this on this planet? Because that's how the Empire is so ubiquitous is that they make the recruitment process so easy that, they, that you know, they just get 
amass these huge numbers of recruits. Oh my god. And then do you think that they might lure them with like a false promise of education and job security? <gasps> oh my god. Is our armies in real life bad? <laughs> what? What? <laughs> the military industrial complex is not a good thing? Um yeah, you're right. It's it's I'm griping. It is I, I don't mind it. But it a lot of people hated this with a fire and a passion. Um how did you how did you guys what did you guys think of this this surname situation i don't know who pointed it out but i i love the idea that solo would have been like smith in our our current language if you don't know someone's uh, at least like in america if you don't know someone's last name or if they don't have a last name smith is like the ubiquitous last name i think there's another one uh, aside from smith but like that Doe, was like what Jane they were Doe saying that was what yeah yeah jane doe that kind of thing um and that's what they were saying is that solo should have been the the last name given when you don't have one. So there could have been a billion solos out in the out in the universe, and it Which, wouldn't have been anything at all for another one to be added. And that could also help him slip under the radar a lot of the time, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. He's just a nobody. He's like a face in the crowd, hitman style. Which also that. is really interesting because he is infamous, and if that were true, he would have given name to the solo name because it literally meant nobody. But after him, it meant someone. So if uh, if Kiro had made it through the door with him and they went to that, would he be Han Duo? <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. I mean, <laughs> good question. <laughs> like, oh. <clears throat> Well, like the, the, way that, the way that the guy says it is like, hmm, I haven't been here all day, and this is the first guy to come here with no last name. You know? <laughs> Han Solo. That's clever. I like that. Yeah. It's funny because that, that leads me into one of the notes that I had is, I mean, I know that they had from a like filmmaking point of view, they had to catch her and get her on one side of the door and Han on the other side of the door. But the way that it happened felt extremely weird. It was like the guards recognized her and pulled her back but didn't recognize Han and let him through. That's yeah. almost what it felt like. I don't know. It just I feel like I could talk for forty minutes just about this entire <laughs> scene itself. Like there's just so much stuff. Like they have the uh, they have the hounds that are supposed to be the trackers who are literally ten feet away and can't find find Han and Kira for some reason. Which, I don't know why use them if they don't work. Yeah, and also right. as another side note, so we could talk about when they are on opposite sides of the door. She slams the dice up against the door right before she gets pulled away. That was, if I counted correctly, the sixth shot of the dice in the first 11 minutes of the film. It's, it's so that you know that the dice are important and don't you forget about it. Remember the dice? Hey, do you, <laughs> wait, do you remember the dice though? Hang on. No, no, no. But hey, wait, no. The dice are going to be important later. How? That just, they won't be. That just worry. makes me... That just makes me wish when she slammed it against the window, she just screamed, Dice! <laughs> Dice! <laughs> <laughs> I'll give these back to you, Han. Oh my god. Han, I'll, I'll give these... I'll mail them to you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll FedEx them. The Dice! Remember the... <laughs> what a fucking weird uh. detail to... They... Because the Dice have nothing to do with this story at all whatsoever. Um, uh, is it because they're in the original... Movies? Yeah, it's because they're in the original movies, and they made such a big deal no, of them. In they are in the Last original Jedi. movie for like literally two seconds. Like they... I didn't even know they were there until no. I saw a like close up of where, like Chewie brushes past them, and his shoulder slightly hits them, and that's it. They just hang. They literally, it's they basically hung on the windshield of the Millennium yeah. Falcon. Yeah. yeah, it's like an air freshener, but for, for your like feng shui 
Um, but then, like then they became a big girl. thing, and <laughs> they're pretty cool guys. <laughs> um, but they, they became a big thing, a big thing in the Last Jedi because that was like the connection to Han or whatever. Um, right. Anyway, that also leads me into a, another interesting point with the guards recognizing Kira, and I started thinking, why? Like, Proxima recognized her, knew her name as well. Do they literally know all of the orphans that they are using, or were Kira and Han really special? And, I mean, the obvious answer was yes, because Han was trusted to, by himself, deliver millions of dollars worth of this precious, precious fuel, and Proxima trusted him to do that all on his own. So, theoretically, Han and Kira were, like, the two top whatever admirals or whatever you want to call them in the slave force that she had hmm. um they're like the king thieves they're the, they're the, the gen the best the best thieves they have yeah. yeah i mean they're pretty slick so that makes sense yeah like you know what and and we kind of see some of that right like they kind of seem pretty comp well han han fucks it up but kira seems like she knows what she's doing hmm. um yeah and, and like i guess they are special and that seems to be implied but we never really get to we never get to contrast that with anything um it's why when stories do this and you have like a gang like this, it's why our protagonist would normally have a rival who is a bit shitter at it, who doesn't like that our character is good at the thing. Like it's why you have like a Draco Malfoy or, or characters like that because they can kind of they can reveal your character's virtues and skills by contrast. Um, but once again, like what we were talking about before, we just don't spend enough time here to get any of that. Um, well, I feel like Lando fills that role a little bit later on. Yeah. Definitely, he's a he's a great addition to this picture as oh, well. He's by far the best character. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean his robot's pretty good too. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah we, I mean we could we could probably talk about this this scene forever. I I think I think the theme of this opening before we do our time cut because when we do our time cut is when the film ostensibly starts. Um, I think one of the, the the overwhelming takeaway from this introduction, I think all of us have kind of said in so many different ways is that it's not enough to just do whatever here and expect us to expect it to kind of ride ride it out and not switch off and kind of carry through right it's different when you're in a theater um and you can like you can't leave except that literally the the exact moment you were talking about rye when that happened and you like went on to reddit was when i got up out of the theater and went to the bathroom like that's that's how bored i was see see same thing you didn't care yeah and it, their job here is to make us give a shit about them. Show us what they're losing. Show us what Han is losing in pursuing the, the in crossing the threshold to adventure and crossing the call to adventure. We need to understand why the old world is valuable. What here is 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 something that he cannot bear to to leave behind or lose. What here is home for him. Um, and there are so many, there are dozens of options that are all viable candidates. It could have been the prestige of being the head thief. It could have been the thrill of doing it with Kira. It could have been any number of things, the pay, the, the, he can do whatever he wants, like any number of things, um, could have been the reason here, but instead none of them are. And we just don't give a shit. Um, and then for some reason, the film makes the genius choice to do a time cut. Um, and we get a three years later, um, <laughs> which is such a choice. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on before we kind of talk about the the time jump as a concept? Um, do you guys have any thoughts like on the the introduction as a whole that we haven't touched on before we kind of tiptoe our way into the next section? Uh, summary of my thoughts are just movies better without it. Yep. Yep. 
which I wonder. So I was just gonna say, I wonder what would happen if we started at the three years later point, like no time jump. Just what would happen if we started there? I think um, it's probably stronger for it. Yeah. There's there's only one moment that I can think of that's kind of a problem if you started there mm. is that. Uh, so when when they're doing the fireside chat, you know, everybody's saying like, what's important to them? You know, Chewie wants to go back to his family or his tribe or whatever. And Han's like, uh, you know, or Val teases it out of him. Oh, it's a girl that he cares about. And he's like, yeah, I left somebody behind on Corellia. I have to get mm-hmm. back there. Um, this is another problem, which I, I guess we'll get to later. But uh, we don't know the significance. Uh, if, if you chop off the beginning and he turns around at the party and she's there, we don't know the significance of her because we don't know that that's who it is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's solved with just like he's got like a locket or something with her picture yeah. in it or a hollow always- something. Easily yeah. solved. Right. So the way. two seconds again, and that's fixed. But uh, right. that's the yeah, only well, thing you, that I can really think of as a problem. Use what's already there, right? He's got, you know, he could be he could be constantly handling the the dice or whatever, like constantly palming them or fondling them or something. And it can be that can be the thing that lets Val pry it out of him. Be like, you're always fucking like you've always got those dice in your hand. Who who gave them to you? Is is that the girl, right? And then we could oh, she must be that important that he's always kind of holding on to the last piece of her he has. Like, there are easy things you can do in your script to serve this stuff that isn't, like, completely changing what's happening. Um, yeah, you're right, though. That, that, that would be impacted, but, yeah, you can write around it. Um, exactly. Cool. So uh, when we, when we uh, cut to three years later, Han is serving on, uh, as an infantryman on Mimban, Mimban uh, following his expulsion from the Flight Academy for insubordination, um, which is great. Uh, the war here is a fucking hellish nightmare. Like, we haven't really seen in Star Wars before. Um, Han is, like, bad at taking orders. It's muddy. It's it's filthy. This is, like, a very uh, different side of Star Wars that we haven't really seen here. Um, it's, like, trench warfare, but it's just in this mud bowl. Um, what did you guys think about this setup for, for what's going to happen next? This, this setting, um, this, this place as it pertains to Star Wars and as it works in this film. I thought that, like, the setting of um, a soldier in the ranks is, you know, it was already done in The Force Awakens, kind of. But, um, I don't know, just, yeah, just the sort of rough uh, nature of this setting is, like, way more compelling, I feel. It's, it's a weird... It's a weird side of Star Wars that, you know, was le- later uh, expanded on in The Mandalorian, Um yeah, I, I really love this uh, the everyman perspective. Yeah, which it's and it kind of goes back to what kind of Ryan Darth were talking about before, which is like if if we if we cut the start and we just had this, then you get a lot more of this, and I think it'd be really interesting to see how is a how operationally the Empire works on the ground in these settings. Mm. You know, well, the thing that I liked about it was well, I, I should I should say that the you know I like the movie from here on out. It's it's good. It's better than fine. It's good after this point. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, although still being mostly fine. The, uh, the, the, the one detail that I kind of like about this is that, you know, you have the perspective of Han, who is, uh, as you said, our every man here. And then the contrast with the officers who are exactly how you would expect them to be based on our previous experience with uh, the Empire, which up to this point has been all officers, right? Mm-hmm. And I think mm. that I think they all have accents. I could be wrong about that. I'm pretty sure the major does. 
He does, yeah. And I think the implication in Star Wars is that characters that don't put one on, <laughs> like they all do that British accent because that's how you talk in the Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that was that's... a thing back in the original trilogy that Lucas did intentionally um, because that was a big thing in, in like the 70s that going going against the government and the man and and he portrayed all of the uh, you know all of the government people by having that British accent and that was a very intentional thing that just kind of carried over for some reason even that's though to... we have like Obi-Wan having an accent and, and other characters well that's but... to differentiate the core worlds from the outer rim right yeah, like Coruscant I, and all that is where the accents are from. I right. Think. Yeah, that's interesting. I see. That's an, even that's just an interesting detail to to help add flavor and like context and noise to this world in a way that I think I think Solo wants to do more of that than it ever ends up achieving. Um, like like this setting, right? Adds so much interesting flavor and things to to pick at and show us and like. You know, that during this war, they have, like, a Wookiee prisoner, which is fucking weird that they throw deserters to. Um, like, there's some, there's some interesting flavor here that, that, that is compelling world-building to me. Um, but, yeah, even something like... You could address that in the text in a way that's pretty interesting. Like, I, I think the, the, behavioral repro- the behavioral reprogramming that the Empire does to the people who... Uh, they, they, they kidnap stormtroopers at birth, so it's a bit different. But, like, they're just regular infantrymen the military industrial complex does this like it brainwashes you into thinking a certain way and acting a certain type of way um to do things that they need you to do which you otherwise wouldn't normally and that's part of the process of that system um i think it would have been cool to see a tiny bit more of that like just a tiny bit more of like maybe they try and get him to do the fake accent or they try and get him to change the way he wears his uniform like we could have just used like a tiny bit more oomph on the military side of things. I don't, I don't know how you guys feel about that. Um, well, well I... one thing, one thing talking about the indoctrination that, that kind of you're describing was that from what I understood, they did not care about him. All of the infantry, um, especially given the fact that they were recruiting on like kind of crime worlds, like we discussed earlier, um, these guys, their only job was to go out and die in the battlefield to gain a couple feet you know, to advance the army a couple of feet. They didn't really care that these guys were trained, that they were part... The captain was, you know, giving his battle cry of for the Empire and all that kind of stuff, but at the core, they don't care about the general infantryman and whether he believes in the cause or not. He's just a, a pawn. Just a body, in a, body in, a, in a suit with a gun, effectively. Yeah. Like, it's just shittier stormtroopers, basically. What are, who are they fighting? Does anybody... anybody uh, the Mimbanese. Oh, so they're subjugating this world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, right. Okay. Han says that to the officer. It's like, you know, why are... We're the, we're the hostiles. We're the bad guys here. You know? We're the baddies. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, dude, it's called the Empire. <laughs> like, yeah. we do, we're, not, we're not subtle about it. Um, but yeah, a lot the, of the officers are pretty, like, uh, brazen about being evil. <laughs> and they're like, yeah... We're, we're the we're the invaders. Yeah, yeah, That's we are. Job. That's what we're yeah. doing. Um, yeah, we're occupying this this uh, location to enforce and enact our will on it. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, maybe the military is bad. Um, yeah, look, and then sort of the next thing that happens is Beckett kind of saunters into town, um, and this weird sequence of events occurs where Han essentially. Um, 
so he tries to does he try to blackmail Beckett? I've written that down as, as what's happening, but is is that how he tries to get onto the Yeah, the because um he sees Beckett has bullet holes in his uh armor that he stole from like an officer, presumably. Right. Yeah, because cause Beckett's impersonating an yep. officer. And he's like, Listen, mate, if you I bloody know your secret, because I'm also a grifter. And if you're grifting, I want to be grifting with you. Let me onto your boat, right? Um but Beckett um has him arrested because he outranks him in this fake uniform. Uh, and he is. You know what's in- kind of funny though is is before before he threatens Beckett, it almost looked to me like Beckett was considering taking him, because yeah. like Han looked like he was rubbing off on him the right way, and 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 Tobias was like, oh, I kind of like this kid, and then he threatens him, and Tobias flips the switch, and he's like, no, you are not going to threaten me, and he calls the dude over. It's got to assert his dominance. Yeah, yeah. Beckett was like, I could use a surrogate son. Yeah, he's yeah. like, I could use someone to adopt and then betray. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know where this story arc is going. <laughs> I'm the turncoat. Uh, yeah, well, and so this this part of our hero's journey is like testing the allies um, and the enemies. Uh, and as is always the way, um, the first easy friend you make is often the, the one that will inevitably betray you. Um, it's just classic storytelling. And it's done very, very well here um, for the most part. I like Beckett a lot. He... Woody Harrelson just has such a presence in this character. Um, I buy him for every ounce of the over-the-hill cowboy he is. Um, there was never a second where I was like, oh, it's Woody Harrelson. I was like, it's Beckett. Like, yeah, it just I, I bought him completely. But uh, yeah, he, Han gets arrested and is thrown to into a pit to be eaten by a Wookiee. Now, boys... So, some terrifying implications here. Yeah, boys, boys and Danielle, I have a question for all of y'all. Um... Is Chewbacca eating these people, guys? Apparently. <laughs> what the fuck? Well, they haven't been giving him anything else, David. You, what the fuck is what, this choice? You do what you got to do to survive. They right? haven't fed him in three days. What else yeah, is he supposed to do? Just yeah, I don't know if y'all noticed that uh, there was actually half a droid down there. So at some point, Chewie got so hungry that he ate the droid that they <laughs> threw down to him, too. Is this the first time this has happened? Has he eaten man flesh before? Uh, he's 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 violent and he's temperamental, uh, that we know. But yeah, I don't I... think it's ever implied that he ate people. I mean, he tries to eat a porg. Oh yeah, that's and right. they're pretty cute. That they're yeah. cuter than people. <laughs> so maybe a person's not a big deal for him. Um, but this, I just... this whole thing is is one reason that a lot of people have a problem with the way that Chewie was introduced. You know, to the entire universe was he. He has always been like the, I don't want to call him a pet, but he was like the good dog, you know? Like, now you've turned him into the rabid dog chained out outside that is literally eating people who aren't necessarily bad guys. I mean, Han was fed to him, and he didn't really do anything bad in the first place. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. That is a, a problem, especially with sort of the newer movies, that Chewie just does what he's told. And he's he's much more like a pet than he is in the in the other movies. Mm. And he gets a lot to do in this one. I, I like him. I like his presence throughout. He does make active decisions for himself. Mm. Um, sometimes. And the interesting thing with how with how he's introduced, I don't know if anyone noticed the music build up to his his reveal. You know, the camera starts off behind him when he comes up out of the tunnel, and then it, it's this big build up of tension. And then the way that the way that the chord resolves is almost in a, a slightly comedic way. Um, 
which if I was a little more musically inclined, I could probably <laughs> describe that better. But it's because the audience is being built up to say, oh, this is an evil creature. But then the camera flips around, the chord resolves, and it's not an evil creature, it's Chewy. So the entire scene was built up for the audience, not for the characters, which is a uh. big problem that all of these films have had is breaking the fourth. I mean, I did an entire video about how they keep breaking the fourth wall to appeal to the audience, talking to the audience instead of actually looking at the characters and how they would be reacting to these situations. Hmm. I noticed that too, that a lot of the beats in this movie are reliant on intertextuality mm-hmm. and not just like it within the <laughs> diegesis of the story. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this, this is something we'll talk about kind of toward the middle and end is to what extent any of that works at all. Um, it's a big problem. Star Wars has, it's reliance on intertextuality in something like The Force Awakens works because the whole movie is about that. Mm. Every single piece of that movie needs you to know who Han Solo... Ostensibly, it needs you to know who Han Solo and Luke are. Um, it needs you to, 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 to know that Jedi were real. It needs you to know what the Force is. It needs you to know that Luke lost a saber um, from the top of Cloud City. There's a lot of things you need to know for that movie to work. And because every single part of that film relies on your understanding of Star Wars... It works pretty well. Um, it's built around that that concept. The problem is, you can't have it both ways. If you're gonna do that, just do that. Like yeah. only do that. Be like, this is we're, we're making no promises. This is just fluffy popcorn um, fan service. Or you do the Mandalorian and you tell a different kind of story and you commit to a series of concepts and you sometimes have those elements introduced. One thing I did want to touch on before we kind of move away from Nimbin is, as a setting, it's really cool. I really like it. We've talked about how much we enjoyed it, but because we don't spend enough time here, there are a few things which are kind of kind of related to the Chewbacca thing and what you were talking about there, Darth, where you you meet him and, and it's like, oh, well, this is for the audience because they already know who he is. There are some other things in this that just kind of never, like, never seem to matter to the film, but but begin to matter because the the introduction of starving Chewbacca made me think about food which made me think about everything else. And this is a thing that happens a lot in movies where th- this is kind of where you get pulled out of the diegesis of the story because I went, oh, they're not feeding Chewbacca. Does he eat people? Okay, that's weird. Does he always eat people? Has he eaten people before? That's kind of weird. Well, what other food would they be feeding him? Is there other like life forms here that they can feed him? Is there local population? Is there like, are there, are there animals that live here? Are they hunting them? How do they get those animals? Where do they get clean water from? What do they eat? When do they sleep? Where where do they sleep? What if this point in Chewbacca's life was actually just like the darkest thing he's ever done? It's like, <laughs> and to this day he regrets it. Like, oh my god, that one time I had to eat people just traumatizes him. He's sitting he's he's sitting on like in the back of the Falcon with like a whiskey. Yeah, and like, like staring to the middle distance. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's what I actually meant to say earlier was that I actually went and looked up the backstory of why was he on that planet in the first place and it literally was like the darkest time of his life like being he was like kidnapped away from his family he was uh found by a bounty hunter he was sold by the bounty hunter tons of terrible terrible stuff to eventually have him wind up in the pit where he's starving to death and having to eat people that he assumedly would have been friends with otherwise so it's just like we said earlier just just a terrible introduction for a beloved character i mean but but to your main point about the food that's really interesting because i had the exact same 
reaction um, to Exegol and the rise of Skywalker when (laughs) it's just this completely barren planet and then you go inside and there's thousands and thousands of people worshipping Palpatine and my very first thought was how are they alive? What are they eating? Where are they living? Um, And there was a video that I saw that was um, I I need to find it so I could link it but talking about I think it was Fallout. Um, One of the video games is like a The shinification of Fallout. Yes, thank you. That's awesome. it's it's unfortunately gone. Really? Yeah, it got claimed by the NBA. I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh my gosh! So so it's a like a a video game about a post-apocalyptic world, and um, he was talking about how the realism in in games or movies or anything is something that's very subtle, but but it adds so much. And so when he's going around a, a game or looking at a movie or something, he's thinking, how are these people living? And so in that video game, you can actually see that there are little farms, um, there are gardens. Every house has a windmill that's drawing water. It, it shows how they are living, which gives breath to the game and lets you really connect with the characters and the world. It's, it's a level of world building that doesn't happen unless you're really devoted to that from the very beginning, which Star Wars has not been. Like on this planet, how are they living on Exegol? How are they living? We don't it, know. It, it, this goes to something that, Rai, you talk about a lot in your videos, which is this idea of like, these are fantasy stories, but so like, how does the force work? It kind of doesn't matter as long as when we see it work, we kind of know some of the rules, and it's in, and it's internally consistent. So if for for this stuff to work, it just needs to be internally consistent with itself. So you know, if if um uh you know what's a good example? Like okay, Fallout is a good example. Um, in the first Fallout game. Um, you leave your vault in search of a water chip. And the reason you need a water chip is because it lets you filter and, and get non-irradiated water, which is what's keeping your vault alive, right? So even the, the main thrust of that story tells you how people in this world get water. And then you go out into the world and you see all these other settlements like Junktown and Shady Sands and, you, and, and the hub, and they all have different mechanisms for survival. They're not all using water chips. They're all using different stuff to survive. And I think that's where Star Wars struggles a little bit is by by accidentally calling our attention to this stuff, the answer, because there's never any answers in the text, you either have to read a fucking visual dictionary to be like, well, how does Ray know how to speak Wookiee? Um, where do they, what do they eat on Exegol? Because you have to either read a fucking visual dictionary to find that stuff out, or the answer is, mm, don't think about it. It... The internal consistency like, is completely shattered. And that's when you get pulled out of the diegesis. And that's when you go, that's when you start to ask those questions instead of what you should be focusing on, which is, oh my God, Chewbacca is going to beat the shit out of Han. How are they going to resolve this? And instead, well, think- all I'm thinking about is all of these things. And that, that's exactly, you're exactly right. It's, it's internal, it's sort of, it's, it's keeping things consistent with each other within the world and considering those things and building your story in a way where those questions either aren't raised or are inadvertently answered, right? If if characters are poor on Corellia, what do they eat versus what do people in this war eat? Are they eating rations? Great. Show us that. In It doesn't need to be in the front of the frame. It can just be part of the story if that's something you want to comment on, if you want to use starvation. You kind of need to know what the alternative was, um, if that makes sense. Like in the absence of food, it makes us think about the presence of food. Um, it's it's the old kind of psychology technique of don't think about pink elephants, 
right? What are you thinking about? If, if the, the second you, you direct your audience not to consider something, um, they inadvertently consider it. And that is a big problem in Star Wars in general, I think. Well, I think uh, well, what we're talking about and the thing that Darth brought up, the the word that the guy used in the video was called was shandification, which I think was his own creation or whatever. And that's the, the basic question of, you're, you go to Exegol and your your first question is well, well there's twenty five thousand something people there where did what do they eat where do they sleep, and I believe the correct word is uh, verisimilitude, it is, which yeah. is uh, and I talked about that in one of my Mando videos, and how episode three, I think it's episode three where they go to the water planet, and how all those elements that you're talking about are, um, are there. Where it's, you have the question of, okay, what do these people eat? That's answered for you. Where, where do they sleep? That's answered for you. What do these people do here? That's answered for you. All of those. And uh, it's, it's done in a way that doesn't really sort of intrude on the story. It's just all part of it. And so that you look at this situation that these characters are in, and it's believable. It makes sense. Yep, absolutely. And I, I like that Darth, you brought up fallout because i think fallout new vegas does this tremendously well at every turn um I, i've recently started replaying out of uh, out of worlds which is by the the same dev team and both of those games in contrast to say bethesda's fallouts which kind of are very weak on this front is they're very they're very interested in um building that that's the building places that have complete um complete diegesis within themselves so it's exactly what you're saying one of the things that a lot of people forget is like you build a location for a function Right, so in this case, Han and Beckett need to meet somewhere. Han needs to escape the planet. Okay, the solution in the storytelling there is he joins the Navy, gets kicked out, and he ends up on some backwater, right? Cool. So that's where they're going to meet. Why is Beckett there? We'll find that out later. He's, he's off to Intel on some Quaxium or something like that. Um, but okay, well, great. Now we've created this location. Let's, let's answer all of those questions and make sure we know the answers to them. One of the most important ones is what do people do with their free time? That answer alone will give you so much detail to put into your space and it naturally kind of cookies out to other things right you kind of it's it's like a it's a it's a natural growth right if you start there it's like oh well maybe they if, if they drink right there's a bar okay well how do they get the liquor for the bar what else does the bar serve well the bar's gonna have to serve food of some kind okay like how are they getting food like you can kind of start with little kernels and work your way out this doesn't do any of that it's just like i don't know also you know when did they have time to build an underground pit? How long have they been on Nimbin? Um, uh, like, I'm not, I'm not usually an advocate for, like, supplemental material. But, like, I don't know. I could imagine from the perspective of someone who doesn't mind reading, you know, all, like, the lore and the backstory, just to fill in the blanks. Like, that could... I don't know. It's always... It's like uh, watching stuff with the intent of knowing that, you know, it's going to resolve, it's going to pay off because you have, like, a bunch of other stuff to read. Um like I could imagine how that's not a big deal for some people, you know, who are really into this universe, mm-hmm. you know, but um, yeah. for people like us that like, you know, like contained stories and such, I think it's, uh, stands well, I, out more. I think, I think there's, there's a, we should be clear. Like there's a, there's a distinct difference between, you know, all right, we're going to sit down and have a whole scene about how, you know, this particular thing works and, or just have just sort of a visual cue there that isn't really touched upon, but is there, for your brain to clock and go, oh, that's the answer to that question. Like yeah. that's there, there's a and the, that's what we're talking about. Is, is, yeah, yeah. It's it's exactly what you said with the the. I think the Wookiee example is so good. It, your brain clocks that Ray 
is talking to a Wookiee, it's then not an issue later. It's just, it's, it's subconsciously clocking those things. And you do it in prose as well. Like uh, it's one of the things I'm working on at the moment in my round of edits for book three is like, okay, like if you, if you want to have a setting where people live, the first thing you need to address, because um, the type of world that I'm writing, it's like kind of post-apocalyptic. It's like very bare bones. It's got some fallouts of Dark Tower energy. It's like, okay, well, like, how do these people eat? What are they eating? What's the quality of the food? How often can they get food? Is it nutritious? If it's not nutritious, what impact is that having on the rest of what they're doing? And if you can answer those questions and then thread into the text little markers, they don't need to be big. You don't need to sit down and be like, Right, this is how Nimbin works. This is where they get the water. This is where the food is. This is where people sleep. You don't need to do that. You just need to kind of provide us enough visual or throwaway dialogue lines that we kind of mentally, like you said, mentally clock it. Like we we kind of go, yep, got it. I know enough about this place. It feels real. I'm not focusing on that. I'm worried about the character drama. That's your goal here. Um, And ironically, they do this very well with the weird um, space yacht thing that we'll see later. so, There's actually a related note about <clears throat> about resources that will kind of bring us back to the storyline a bit. Yeah. And I cannot come up with an answer for this. I'm curious <laughs> if anyone else can. Why did Beckett and his crew go to that planet to get a ship? They literally went into a war zone to get a ship and risked all of their lives. Why? Uh... I was wondering the same thing. Um, because it's easier to steal in like chaos. Is it? Yeah, but but Voss has like billions of dollars. <laughs> he could have bought them a ship. Like, why did they have to go and and deal with Lando to get his ship? Like, well, Voss could have. I don't. I don't understand. He's a scary man. You don't want to ask too much of him. <laughs> I'm glad. I, uh, These are questions yep. you shouldn't be ans- asking. Um, right, because, essentially. Yeah, sorry, the answer to that, Darth, is because Beckett needed to meet Han. Um, is and the we reason. have to meet Lando at some point. Exactly. And It's yeah. it's exactly what all y'all were talking about before. It's in service of the audience, not in service of the characters or the story. No, I, I, can, I can buy that uh, they need a ship. They need to steal a ship. Yeah. You, you want to steal a car or whatever. If you're going to pull off a heist, you've got to steal the car, right? And Step one. So it's yeah. untraceable. And I can buy that they need to steal this ship, and I can... I, I agree with the idea of it's a chaotic situation to the Empire. They're not going to miss an AT hauler. Uh, so I, I don't think it's that that much of a stretch. But no. or, or I should say it's not a question that I was thinking about in this. I'll in buy this it. Yeah. I'll buy it as an explanation. But you know where would have been like a better place to get like a, to steal an unmarked ship that maybe no one would miss? Probably Corellia. Mm, probably. The crime planet. <laughs> oh. You know, yeah. Get one fresh I off the assembly Ooh. line, right? Say Is again? this like a rewriting solo podcast now? Like, Apparently. are we trying to pick this up? Apparently, yeah, just turned into a bit of a script doctor. Yeah, let yeah. me fix your shit, Star Wars. One thirty. One thirty. Okay, it's ad time. Uh, we're gonna take a quick ad break. Um, thank you, Patrick, for reminding me. Enjoy these products and/or services. It's usually it's usually products. I don't know why. I don't think we've had a service yet. There might be though. Who knows what ads are being served? Enjoy them. Have fun with capitalism. If you like this stuff, go buy it. Helps us out. We'll be right back. Hey guys, this second episode of Too Much Cowboy is brought to you by my novel series, Maynard Trigg. You can find them at maynardtrigg.com. They are low sci-fi, coming-of-age fantasy stories all about the protagonist, Maynard Trigg. The second novel, Maynard Trigg and the City of Whispers, is out now, available for order in paperback from the website. 
you can get 10% off using code COWBOY10 at checkout. That is COWBOY10 at checkout to grab yourself 10% off your first paperback order. And stick around to the end of this episode of the show to hear a little excerpt read by the incredible Wayne G. All right, welcome back. Um, Hope you enjoyed um, those advertisements um, and that they were brief for you. And if you did buy some stuff, let me know how it went. Uh, So what happens next in our story here is that Han basically is able to understand Chewbacca um, and he he persuades him to team up in order to escape, right? So they're going to kind of become a bit of a duo, a bit of a partnership to get off this this dang Nimbin rock, this big mud bowl. Uh, Now... Essentially, what happens next is that Beckett was already on the fence about Han. He, got, he threw him away. But seeing that Han has escaped and recruited a Wookiee, a Wookiee's a great asset, right? He's strong. He's powerful. Um, Beckett kind of sees some value in Han's resourcefulness, sees some value in having Chewbacca, and sees, he says, listen, fine. We'll, t- we'll take him on board, right? So he kind of caves. Um, I, it's I kind of really... funny. Later on, I don't, I don't know if you... Uh, Rye brought up the scene where they're on the, on the bridge underneath the ship, uh, Han and Chewie. And I don't know if anyone got it because Chewie says it in Sri uh, Luk or whatever his uh, language is called. But he says, they only saved us because of me. And then Han responds, they know they saved us because of me. So they're actually arguing which one <laughs> of them was responsible for the ship coming back to save them. That's kind of fun. I like that. Uh, yeah, I didn't really have any particular thoughts about the escape or them getting their way onto Beckett's ship. It needed to happen narratively. It's pretty ineloquent, but it's, there's nothing ostensibly wrong with it. Um, I got uh, I got two things about this. The first is, uh, so the video I made about Ray speaking Wookiee, I said in there that the same questions I had about her, are, or the basic problem is that her background doesn't really establish that she should speak Wookiee. It doesn't mm-hmm. automatically make you think she should speak Wookiee, which makes it kind of jump out at me in The Force Awakens. Here, it's the exact same thing. It's that later Han, in A New Hope, speaks Wookiee, and that makes sense. Chewie's his partner. It's his character introduction where they can just say, you know, this is what he can do. And that's fine. But here, we've already had sort of his introduction, which doesn't really work that well. And they haven't given me any reason to think that he would know how to speak Wookiee. So it's the the exact same problem that she has, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this, again, like, there are so many other options here that they could have gone with. To, to Like, I'm not even going to, like, pitch any of them because they're all really, really obvious. But, like, yeah, same issue. It's just not set up at all. Um, Couldn't they have put, like, a Wookiee on his, like, original planet? I forget what it was called. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, that... yeah, same they thing. They could have been, like, Wookiee. Same, same thing Wookiees with Wookiees get Ray. enslaved a lot. That's a slave right. place. Could have been Wookiees there, Wookiee bodyguards. Um, he could have just spoken yeah. bad Wookiee to start with and maybe not fully understood right. most of what Chewie was saying. Um, Which he, he kind of says, doesn't he say, like, he doesn't fully speak it. He said he speaks some Wookiee, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he speaks a little Wookiee. That, that that he speaks correct, a smidge yeah. of Wookiee. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> He's got a... So he, he just was fluent. He just kept going. I'm like, all right, I guess you know more than just some. Well, no, if yeah. you look at the translations, it's it's really broken. Like the Oh, is it? Yeah, like the syntax is, is all like intentionally bad to show that he doesn't really speak the language. He says like, look, go now. Like stuff like that, where uh, okay. you get the point, but he doesn't really know what he's saying. It's a shame um, that isn't better conveyed in the performances, I guess. 
I, I think it's pretty conveyed. Yeah. Like he seems to be straining his mouth. Like it seems like a painful language to speak, you know, and he mm. kind of takes breaks in between words and stuff. I thought it was done pretty well. But an interesting point that I wanted to bring up was something that I did an entire section on in my analysis of Ray. Um, it, it was the fact that she didn't just speak Wookiee, but she spoke multiple languages. She uh, spoke uh, droid. Um, she speaks binary, a, yeah. Yeah, and then there was uh, this that uh, little alien uh, that tried to kidnap BB-8. She spoke that language as well. And the point that I raise is that an orphan who is struggling to survive is not actively learning trying to better themselves and han would have had the same exact issue when he's growing up i assume as an orphan on this very harsh planet all they're trying to do is steal stuff to get food to survive why would he ever have tried to learn other languages yeah it just better not it go just on doesn't make sense. better not go on that thieving run tonight i gotta sit down and read my french textbook <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but uh the the other thing I, the other thing i wanted to say is that um uh, I kind of figured this out um, sometime later. I think it was my second, maybe my second watch. But uh, it was one of the things I really like about this movie is every big section of the movie, they're stealing something. Because it's, it's a heist movie, right? Yeah. So the very first shot, they're stealing something. And then he's stealing the coaxium. Or, no, he steals the speeder. Then he steals the coaxium. Then um, they steal the ship and then so on and so forth. And yeah. they're stealing something everywhere they go. And I, I, I really like that. Yeah, it has a nice internal, like, has a nice thematic consistency. Um, yeah. yeah, and and that kind of, uh, so, I don't know, if do, do we want to talk about this initial Cloud Riders scene, or do we want to kind of lean into discussing um, that exact thing, which is like the, I know, you know, we'll, we'll stick with the story, and we'll, we'll kind of, we might, we might arrive and, and discuss the kind of thieving and greed stuff in a minute. Um, so... Basically, the so Beckett's plan is to... He's got a train heist that he's doing, right? Um, and they're going to go steal a shipment of coaxium on Vandor 1, um, which is a location we haven't seen before. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's essentially the train job from Firefly, if you guys remember that TV show. Um, it's beat for beat the exact same thing um, in the setup and the execution until everything goes wrong and then it becomes Star Wars again. Um, to, to the point where like I can see... I can see the Wedden influence in an aggressive kind of weird way where the shipmates occupy the same roles as the characters in Firefly. They lean into the Western thing. It, I'm not saying, I'm not like, I don't think it's, it's not sort of like cribbing anything from that. It just, you can, I could, they're wearing the inspiration here on their sleeve and I kind of dig that. Um, but so we get this kind of cool action sequence where um, our, our team is going to rob this train and steal this coaxium. But of course, the plan goes south when a band of marauders led by Emphis Nest, which is the world's hardest name to say, um, arrives to, to hijack. She's going she's gonna to heist their heist. Um, she's heisting, heisting the heisters. Um, and in the resulting kind of chaos, uh, the coaxium is destroyed in a pretty cool explosion. Uh, and Beckett's wife, Val, and the pilot, Rio, um, kind of perish in the action. Um, what Rio's, did... Rio's death got me. Yeah? yeah. You, Rio, you fell for Rio? Yeah. yeah. I didn't really care about Val, but Rio, I liked him. <laughs> yeah, he seemed fra- He seemed fun. Yeah. I like, I like his, he, he's, I like, I like, I like his arms. He's got, a lot of, <laughs> he's, got a, he's kind of got a cool thing going on. No, but it's, it's weird how like, you know, this beginning, the beginning scene when um, he gets separated from Kira on Corellia, and then this scene, it's just like these very tiny bits of pathos here and there 
um, that like, you know, they try to have it both ways where they want a huge, you know, cool kind of sprawling p- plot with also these uh, poignant moments of like character deaths and stuff. Mm. And they try to have it both ways. doesn't really work. I th- yeah. I, and it's hard to put your finger on exactly why that is. I don't know. I think mostly it's just we never spend enough time with any one character for that stuff to super land properly. Yeah. I mean, you got the campfire scene, which is like, you know, you get bits of every character. And uh, well, that's yeah. pretty much it. And then the next scene is this. They die. Yeah. Um... But Rio's death has so much more impact because he he has much more interaction with everyone than Val does. Like, she, pretty much her only interaction is to diss Han, whereas Rio is more like making an emotional connection. That's why his death has so much more impact on us than hers, even though she, she like, actively sacrifices herself to save everyone's life. We should feel much more sorrow for her death, but I'm I'm with Patrick. I very much was affected by Rio's death because we liked him more because he was a likable character because he was written in a way that made us care about him where Val was antagonistic and purposefully written to be so. Hmm. I Not don't only- my that wasn't my uh that wasn't my feeling on that is uh, I I liked her just fine. It's my problem was when she's like, you know, it's been a ride babe and I'm going to hit the button and, and kill myself now. I'm like, this is they're not rebels, right? What? She's killing herself for a job? It doesn't make any that, sense. That didn't, that didn't, yeah. that, that, that was one of, uh, what do you, that um, pulled me out of the scene right there. So it lacked the emotional impact for me because of that, I think. I took that to mean that that was the only way that she saw that, that her husband was going to be able to survive is if, if she blew up the bridge. That was my interpretation. I could see um, that. Yeah. I th- yeah, I can see that. I, c- I can see both those readings making total sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. Danielle, what did, what did you think? I, it's... I, I'm like, I think both of those interpretations are both valid. I, I kind of, when I saw it, I was just sort of like, there's too many characters and we have to come back to, um, what was her name? Kira from the beginning at some point, I'm assuming. So when she sacrificed herself it was sort of like yeah we need this something that's supposed to sort of pull our heartstrings supposed to be this emotional moment and because we don't know this character that well i just didn't really feel much of anything it's just it's that point in the movie when you feel something you're supposed to feel this thing feel the thing um and i didn't damn so (laughs) yeah just it was a beat it happened i was like all right i wish i cared more about this character yeah um and again, Rio, I, you know, I agree with everybody that, like, I cared about his death a little more. It hit me harder. Um, I wanted Val's to hit me harder, but it just... Just didn't. And it, it didn't. Beckett shares our apathy. Beckett shares our apathy. <laughs> I don't understand why you wouldn't just cut Val entirely um, and merge any of her plot-required kind of activities to be Rio's. Mm. Seems like a no-brainer to me. Um, yeah, Beckett mm. seems very unfazed by this. Yeah. Um, oh, no. Yeah. Anyway... Yeah. yeah. Oh, dang. That's what a boy. We got a job to do. I was like, wait, sorry, my dude. Which would have been a thing that would have made me care more as well about Val. Maybe it would have hit harder if he actually dwelled on that a little more. But he, <laughs> if, he doesn't. I, mean, I get what they're going for. He's supposed to be yeah. like the cool cat. He doesn't care about anything. Yeah, he cares I'm about just, money. I'm just about money. Yeah. I'm just me. I'm a gangster. 
I'm a cowboy. Um, like, I get what they're doing. I just, I'm not sure to what extent it works. Um, well, I think that, that this is the first instance where it kind of touches on one of the bigger issues uh, with this movie as it relates to the rest of Star Wars, which is when we first meet Han in A New Hope, he's a bit of a selfish jerk. He's looking out for numero uno. And this Han, we have to get him to that point. And this this Han is not that much of a jerk. He's He's generally a pretty good guy. And He's so Beckett is his example to build on of, you know, looking out for numero uno and, you know, his wife or whatever relationship they had. The person most significant to him has just died. And, well, well that's bad. But moving on, we have other problems to deal with. And that's just Star Wars. <laughs> then that's, that's Han's example character, uh, which, I don't know, we, we, we sort of go back to that in other scenes of the movie as well. Um and I think it's one of the one of the bigger issues I have with that with Han's character in here is how do we get him? Or, or I think a better way to put that is like I like this this Han, but I kind of have to not like him by the end of it. And I don't think they get they don't think they did that well enough. Yeah, yeah, same thing. Yeah. Like it's a reverse character progression from where he ends up in Episode Four, and it just does not make sense. It's almost like we needed to have Kira die in his arms. We needed to have something turn him because he is a good guy now. He needs to be a semi-bad guy, and he never gets to that point. He ends the movie with giving away all his money to someone who needs it. He is not the same guy he is in episode four. I wonder if that's because they were planning to do two more of these. My my thinking is they're setting up Kira to to be his ultimate kind of love slash rival you know he her betrayal when he when he discovers her betrayal and that she's working for darth maul that i think is the thing and you know she's gonna die and that's gonna be the thing that turns him but obviously it didn't happen <laughs> we didn't get two more so i you're absolutely right it doesn't work um and this goes back to what pat was talking about like at the start which is like you know this needs to be a completely contained story that works by itself and it doesn't even that absent, absent that, absent the fact he shows up later, it still doesn't work by itself as it stands, and that's kind of a shame that that this, yeah, you're right. This this Han doesn't really change this movie at all. Um, he starts off as like a kind of kind of a jerk who has a heart of gold, and he ends as kind of a jerk who has a heart of gold. Wait, I'm sorry. Which movie are you talking about? A New Hope. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Um, yeah, exact same character arc. Exactly the same character yeah. arc. Uh, so Beckett basically reveals that he was ordered to steal the shipment for Dryden Voss, which is a very Star Wars name. <laughs> Dryden Voss sounds like a like a fucking uh, OC, like you know, someone that you've written. In, it's a fan fiction name. Um, sounds like a car. It does. Dryden Voss. Yeah. yeah, I got the Dryden Voss twelve. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and Dryden, uh, Dryden, it's a hard name to say. Dryden Voss is a high-ranking crime boss in the Crimson Dawn Syndicate, uh, uh, which which we don't know anything about yet. Um, now Han and Chewie sort of volunteer. I, I guess so. <sighs> Han and Chewie are like, look, we'll help you. We'll help you work this out, right? We 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 don't. We were part of this crew. This is our problem now. We're going to work with you to kind of help sort things out um, with Voss. Um, and Beckett, kind of absent of other options, sort of agrees to do this. Uh, I guess he doesn't really have any other choice. He's like, yeah, I'll take you to, you, you can probably help. Uh, so they travel to Voss's yacht where Han finds Kira, um, who is now one of kind of Crimson Dawn's 
um, top kind of lieutenants. She's sort of like a... I'm not really sure of her exact relationship to Voss professionally, like what her role is. She seems to be like a PA slash lieutenant slash kind of uh, emissary. Uh, it's, it's very hard to say what she actually does for him. Um, but we bump into her again here, and we meet Voss, who's our big bad. Um, and yeah, he's all scarred up, and he, he's, uh, he's got these played by Paul Bettany, which is a primo choice <laughs> casting. Um, he's, he's intimidating, he's British, because everyone evil in Star Wars is British. Um, and he's like, you know, y'all have failed me, this is disappointing. Um, and Han boldly, apropos of nobody asking him to speak, um, suggests a very risky plan to steal unrefined coaxium from the mines of none other than Kessel, um, is, is, the, is the plan here. What do, we, what do you guys think about this this fancy yacht and this this setting and these these characters as as we kind of get introduced to them again? This is where Solo shines the best, I think. Um, the when in the yacht with like all just the set design, the costumes, the art direction, oh, it's so weird good. and it's unique. Uh, the the music, the what they're singing is like kind of like a bit off kilter. Um, yeah, this is this is it, the best part of the movie. It feels me. like a real place. Yeah, there's. How do they get food? Well, there's waitresses, wait- waiting staff and robots, and there's drinks and platters, and yeah, it does all the things it needs to. Mm. I really like it. Uh, what, what about one thing that I, One thing that really bugged me once I thought about it was the fact that unless the ship came to them, well, even if the ship came to them, it, they were walking because their ship was destroyed. They're walking through the snow, and then they find Dryden Voss's ship. Why didn't he send his literal army to help them fight off Enfri's Nest and save the Coax? That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, (laughs) Because then Val wouldn't have died and we wouldn't... uh, Then... (laughs) (laughs) Because then it raises the question of why wouldn't he just send his army to Kessel to annex it? Anyway, don't think about it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's that's the biggest problem that I have with him is, is... Yes, he is working for someone else. Maybe he doesn't have full control of the finances, but he never seems to give them um, any of the people who are working for them. He doesn't give them the tools that they need in order to actually complete their mission. He he could have bought them a ship. He could have bought them weapons. He he doesn't actually provide them anything with all of the wealth that he has. He has literal diamonds just sitting around his his living room for no reason when yeah. he could have bought tools with those diamonds, you know? Well, that goes back to... Sorry, no, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I don't know if that speaks... I don't know how much I stand behind this, but if that could speak to his character, um, him doing that, like saying, well, like it's almost like he's not giving them the tools, and that's the point. Um, again, I don't know how much I stand behind that, but perhaps that's what they were going for, to sort of convey his cruelty and just how much of an ass he is, but um, I, I don't know. Uh, it seems a little flimsy. Sorry, what were you going to say, Ray? Uh, I was going to say, to go back to uh, or to earlier, a nitpicky thing is that um, uh, they're not going, to, in terms of not having the tools that they need to do the job, they kind of require Han and Chewie to do this job. As well, where were the other two people that they would have needed? You know? Yeah. 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 Right, so that's, 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 a, that's a nitpicky thing. You shouldn't be thinking about that. No, but, no, no, exactly. Uh, now the the only thing that I can think of for for this particular part is that you know just to maintain that separation, 
between that's my yeah my assumption was like he doesn't he's using all these contractors and middlemen so that he doesn't directly go against the empire yeah because yeah, that's the whole thing the about uh, about the kessel job is that if they do it they're not affiliated with him so there's not going to be a war between right what are they called again something crimson the, dawn crimson dawn and and the, the, uh, and the pikes uh, yeah yeah um, and we'll, we'll, oh, we'll talk about Kessel, don't worry. Um, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but essentially what we get here is um, Han and Chewie, uh, they basically agree to this effective, like, suicide mission. There's, like, there's, they're like, there's no way that you can make the Kessel run. And Han's like, well, I'm the bloody best bloody pilot you've ever bloody met, mate. You don't know any, you don't know about me. You've never met anyone who's as good at flying ships as I am. Um, I'll get, I'll make it happen. And Dryden Voss, for some reason, goes... Yeah, sure. He's like, yeah, I believe you. Uh, it's either that or he dies, so he's got to be pretty confident. Yeah. Well, he's not losing anything if they die, really. Yeah. Um, except, I guess, like a valuable contractor in Beckett, but then Beckett's fucked up already. So, yeah. Um, I Voss's setup is nice. Um, I agree with Pat. I think this is this is solo at its best. This feels like a real place. Ironically, Kessel gets a very similar treatment. Um, uh, basically, kind of, kind of where we're at now is. So I can't, I can't remember who it is. Is it Voss or Kira that insists Kira go with them? Voss. 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 Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Voss. Yeah. Why? Because he's just said it's a suicide mission. Why would you send one of your top lieutenants slash PA slash weird? Uh, whatever their relationship is because, because she needs to go with him yeah. like they need to I have, forgot there was know, a plot they... happening yeah as like well, insurance. Needs to go. the implication that i felt was that uh she had she had vouched for han um and that was that was dryden's way of saying if you vouch for him then you are literally vouching for him with your life um so you have to go with him and prove that he is worth me investing in um that's not to defend the decision because I don't really think it was. It, no, yeah. well, I think that goes back to what Danielle was saying earlier. Like that decision tells you a lot about his character and the and the organization as a whole, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. True. I th- I think it also speaks to him treating all of these people as expendable whilst pretending he cares. Like that's a big thing he does with Beckett a lot, where he's always like he's very polite and he's like gentile with him. But he's willing to throw him away at a moment's notice. It's this faux kind of um, intimacy in order to manipulate these people to get them to do what he wants. Um, yeah, there is something underlyingly sinister here. Um, and yeah, along okay. those lines of uh, underlying sinister, just to uh, touch on the fact that uh, she is literally branded with his his ring. Her uh, That insignia of his ring is branded on her wrist. And the numerous times that we see him casually put his arm around her shoulders uh. or touch her gives you the implication of, of, especially when she says to Han, you don't know the things that I've had to do. You can see what kind of relationship that she has had. Yeah, makes me fucking really uneasy. Um yeah, they, they, that's that's done very very well in my opinion. Um, yeah, it makes me squirm every time he does it. I, just, I hate it. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. He's a he's a bad dude. Voss is in no un- uncertain terms the villain of our story here. Um, 
Oh, is... did, did you get that from when he stabbed that dude with the knife? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the knife stabby was kind of... That's yeah. when I started to suspect. Mm. Um, yeah, no, it wasn't until wasn't until he tried to stab our heroes that I knew for sure he was the baddie. No, it's for me, sure. it's the it's the waitress with like the half the head that like is so creepy oh, to me. Yeah. yeah. Can we talk yeah. about let's talk about okay, we've touched on it already, but the, the design of this yacht is fucking sensational and makes no goddamn sense and I love it. Like it's a space yacht that is upright like a sail, and they're on a they're on the like one of these middle floors and the the fucking robots and the people there are all weird looking. Like, he just has a harem of people there to party with him at all times. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're in a fucking middle of nowhere, fucking podunk rock, and he's just got a party happening. He's just living his best life. He's living his best life. I'm a little jealous. Um, <laughs> he's out there having, drinking space drink, taking space drugs. Yeah, eating space shrimp. Eating space shrimp with space women. Um, yeah, he's, he's definitely made it. And I, I think showing us his opulence in comparison to the horrific uh, situation on... Uh, Corellia, and then the the kind of the the, the war torn uh, Nimbin. This is the first time we've really seen um, a a clean part of Star Wars that either isn't the Empire or isn't like part of society before it fell. Because we get a lot of like clean normal places in the prequel trilogy, uh, but we've never really seen like independent wealth independent of the Republic and of the Empire. This is really the first time in Star Wars that we've seen like. Wealth that looks like opulence. I mean, Jabba's palace does not... It's like a crime den. It doesn't look well, opulent and clean. Well, know? no, we have Canto Bite, right? Oh, right, yeah. Canto Bite. <laughs> Fuck me. Canto Bite. Well, no, it was, no, exactly what you were saying just there. Like, that's like... Again, when I was arguing with my Star Wars buddy after the movie, I was like, I kind of like that sequence because... It's a look at something that's not a base or a ship, and it's uh, we don't. I I appreciate any time that that happens. Now, yeah. there's a lot of arguing about whether or not that whole sequence actually looks like Star Wars, but uh, I liked that it was a, a, a different look. That is one positive thing I can say about that sequence. Well, hey, we'll take it. You know what? We'll give Solo the points where it can get it. It kind of needs them at this point. We've been <laughs> we've been ragging on it pretty hard. Um, we'll, we'll we'll give them these ones for free. Um, does anybody have anything else on the yacht before we take a quick break and then talk about um, what happens next? There's only uh, one thing that I have, and that's uh, when Kira shows up to surprise him. Um, so there's, like the, there's this, this thing, I don't know how much you buy into this, but this idea that pretty early on in the movie, I think the, the, the rule these days is about 11 minutes in. Uh, is that we should have a general idea of what this movie's about and where we're going. What the what's the big goal of the movie? Like, or you know, get the plans to the to the rebels, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, that's we should know what that is very early on, and that. But if we know it too soon, it will die at the midpoint. Yes. And uh, so my feeling going into this was okay. He states it at the campfire. I've got to get back to Corellia. I've been away too long. I've got to get back to Kira. And I'm thinking, okay, that's what this movie's about. He's got to do this job to get back to, to get back to her. And then we get here at the midpoint on the ship, and it's no, the, uh, or this this is the midpoint, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, and we get here, and it's like, no, there she is. That objective is now complete. Mm. So I'm, but it's, I'm, I'm yeah, I, I suppose then then his motivation is to clean up the mess he made getting here. Yeah, um, which is not nearly like, okay. as compelling as, as having yeah, that as a. I'm like, all right, this is what this movie's about, I guess. 
Well, I think the implication going back to the ring and the brand on her arm, because we see Han's reaction to both of those things. And that could be twofold of a, he's seeing that she has been abused in some fashion, but B he is seeing that she is literally owned by someone. So one way you could interpret that is that Han now knows he has to fight to get money in order to buy her because he doesn't have her. She may physically be there, but he knows on some level that he doesn't actually have her yet. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Especially because I feel like there's this sort of a theme of liberation in the movie and it's, it's there and it's not subtle but it's never really followed through pretty much anywhere. Um, yeah, it's a topic the movie has in it, but it's never really addressed. Like, the, the story never really says anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. So Makes I find cool that event, interesting. Though. Sorry? Makes a cool event, though. Makes a cool event. It does. It does. I There's hadn't thought cool about stuff. it like that, but I can, t- I can totally see that in there, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we might kind of step away and have a quick break here and then come back and talk about some of the... the um, the middle and the end of this film. Um, Danielle, I know you have to duck off. Um, did you have any kind of um, closing thoughts that you wanted to leave us with for the rest of the film? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just say, I'm sorry I couldn't stay to talk about um, L3 and Lando more because their <laughs> scenes were some of my favorites. Yeah. Um, but I will say that uh, there's a really good YouTube video um, about like droids and star wars um from pop culture detective that i'd recommend watching it's very good um and the other thing i just want to say is this movie was fine i liked it <laughs> it was enjoyable and i feel like i feel <laughs> i feel like like we're, we're being very critical of it and i like and i'm not like a huge star wars person but i want you know like i think it's fine it's just a movie love it um that i watched and moved on and moved on with your life unlike us who yeah. are trapped in this forever um this is just how we live i feel our lives. bad i don't have more to say no that's <laughs> okay about it. thanks for watching this episode of too much cowboy you have our patrons to thank for this series big shout outs to cameron and yuke kumans our top patreon supporters you can join them by heading to patreon.com slash zero indent and contributing to our independent media publication If you'd like to see more from us or more of this show and you're listening on the Too Much Cowboy podcast feed, you can either head to youtube.com slash zero indent or look up Backtrack behind the creators wherever you find your podcasts to listen to more. The walls and floor and window frames shuddered as a metal boot crossed the threshold and a figure stepped into the house. Beneath its heavy hood... Two red discs glowed where eyes should have been. The creature stopped moving. Its head snapped to face them, eyes radiating through the window. The boy will run, Mooney cried. Mooney pulled Maynard forward. They sprinted down the porch as the front door was thrown from its hinges. Maynard looked back and saw the creature standing in the doorway. The red discs flickered and went black and the Seeker was enveloped in the darkness beyond the door. Invisible. Join the adventure at maynardtrig.com.